0: Geography Scholars. Minnesota is east of the Rockies, and you're listening to AM1500 KSTP. From the high desert and the great American Southwest. I bid you all good evening or good morning as the case may be across all these many prolific time zones. I indeed bid you welcome to whatever it is that's going to happen tonight. I'm going to describe all that in a moment actually uh, quite some bit. From Hawaii and Tahiti, where you conjure up visions of hammocks and drinks with big umbrellas and girls with um, uh, poms, just sort of, uh, anyway, I could go on and on about that, to the Caribbean, where the visions are very similar, in the east, south into South America, north, all the way to the pole, this is Coast to Coast AM, top of the morning, well, what are you going to say about Green Bay, <laughs> will they repeat, it sure looks that way. Minnesota had some good defense, but um, it, it was nowhere near good enough. Green Bay, I think, is unstoppable. It was a good game tonight. Of course, you know, I'm kind of partial to Green Bay. You can probably tell when I held up the, uh, the helmet one of my fans sent me.
1: <laughs>
0: I'd like to welcome to KRMS in Osage Beach, Missouri. 11.50 on the dial there. Welcome to the network. Great to have you on board as the network continues to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And grow. We have named our dog. And the winner is... David Buller. B-U-L-L-E-R. Uh, David, thank you very, very much. We went through, spent uh, the weekend going through hundreds, uh, uh, actually thousands, of suggestions of names. And the winner is... Giza. Giza. That's her name. It was irresistible. Uh, David Bullard, I'm not sure where David is from. His email came from an educational um, institution of some sort. And there were a lot of close ones. We thought seriously about Nova, which was cute. But Giza, in view of our recent vacation and attachment uh, that you well know to that area, and plus the fact that it's just kind of a cute name, Giza's doing well, eating, and eating, and eating, and eating, and eating. Giza's been doing a lot of eating, and uh, so we know she can eat, and her belly uh, is beginning to swell where there was sort of a dent there before. Giza, of course, is our new dog. If you want to see her, she's on the Internet, thanks to Keith Rowland, who was here and took a couple of photographs of her. Uh, At any rate, I want to thank everybody. So many of them were so good. Uh, suggestions, but Giza just, you know, popped right out at us, and uh, we've sort of already taught her her new name. Now, in a moment, coming up, Peter Davenport and a report on what's been going on uh, nationwide, a couple of very, very interesting uh, reports. One concerning the possible landing of a UFO. That's Peter Davenport of the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle. So he'll be coming up in a moment. And then later, next hour, we're going to be talking with Lloyd Pye, who has written a book called Everything You Know is Wrong. And what he means by that is human evolution, our roots, where we came from, what we are, how we got here. What did we emerge from? Creation? Evolution? Uh, The Darwin theory? Oh, that should be very, very interesting indeed. I'm going to make a special announcement. We only do this once a year. And I'm I'm not sure, but this might be the last year that I'm going to do this. Just because (laughs) it's too hard. I have two books that I have written. A lot of you will only know of one, called, of course, The Quickening, uh, the latest one that made it to the bestseller list. In fact, it's still on there. About number five, I think, on the uh, New York Times, a bestseller business list, hardcover. Uh, But I wrote an earlier book called The Art of Talk, about me, about talk radio, about the way I feel about things. And so if you want to know about me, Here is your opportunity to get an autographed copy. Yes, autographed. This is what we do at Christmas. An autographed copy of The Art of Talk
1: or The Quickening or
0: both. Now, normally these books would be um, individually $24.95 plus $5 shipping and handling. If you buy both books what they call a combo pack, (laughs) it's $52.90, which includes the shipping and handling charge. That's a pretty good deal. So, um, how would you order these autograph books? We're doing it a Christmas-only one-time deal, folks. You would call right now, beginning now, one 800 864 Nine, one. And I would suggest to you that you are now participating in a final event. Because the show has become so large, <laughs> it just, I just can't do that much anymore. So this is probably the last time we're going to be doing it. You can buy them individually for twenty four ninety five plus five dollars shipping and handling, or you can buy the combo pack at fifty two ninety. That includes the shipping and handling. And as I said, I think this is the last time we're ever going to do it. So if you want in, it's 1-800-864-7991. I know a lot of you have been waiting for that. In a moment, Peter Davenport and some strange stuff. When it comes to information on extraterrestrials, if you're like me, there's no way to get enough. So you've got to see this fine, chilling video. Area 51, the alien interview. I know a lot of you saw this, or a little little bitty piece of it, on Extra or Strange Universe. They had a few seconds, and they sort of ran it and re-ran it. Here, finally, is the full 65-minute documentary, containing very convincing color footage of government agents interviewing a space alien inside the base at Area 51, spirited out by Victor, who is now in deep hiding. It's only $19.95 plus shipping and handling. Watch it in detail and give me a report. You tell me. The number is one 800 510 3420. You can call now. 1-800-510-3420. Area 51, the interview of an alien. Are All you right. Mean... Uh, Here is a man who has been generating reports for us from you for a very long time. He takes probably thousands of calls on a regular basis and has to look into all of these uh, reports of Anomalous uh, UFOs and various incidents, and decide what seems real, what seems worth investigating, and, uh, you know, the wheat from the chaff, that kind of thing. He is the National UFO Reporting Center, uh, Peter Davenport. Hi, Peter.
2: Good evening, Art.
0: What in the world is going
2: on? Boy, I wish I knew the answer to that question. If I knew the answer to it, I'd either be uh-huh. famous or dead. I'm not sure which. But uh, I am uh, Maybe delighted. both, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps both. That's right. I'm delighted to have an opportunity to share with our listeners to l- tonight our, some of the things that have been going on, because if they're true, they are very interesting. And we are seeking, frankly, we are seeking more information about a couple of these incidents that some of our listeners tonight may actually have been witness to. And didn't quite perhaps understand what they were looking at or didn't think to report them or didn't know about us or one thing or another. Okay. But the most intriguing report we have comes from just about 30 miles south of Chicago. Last night, Sunday night, the 30th of November, we have what appears to us to be a very, very credible report from a qualified observer. The gentleman's a pilot. He's very bright, very aggressive. Last night, Sunday night, he and his girlfriend were driving west on Interstate 80. This is just about 30 miles south of Chicago, near the town of uh, New Lenox, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. That's just east of uh, Joliet on the south side of the Illinois River. And they were witness, sometime after 6.30 p.m. local time, they were witness to a most peculiar image or event in the night sky art. They saw a very large red, perhaps flickering or burning orb come down True solid overcast and descend vertically. It was in, it was below the overcast long enough so that they think they saw it for somewhere between 10 and 30 seconds. That is a very, very long time for an object that was as bright as they report it was and as prominent and large. And the color was very distinctive. It was blood red, apparently. The interesting thing about this case is that we have some confirmation that perhaps law enforcement uh, or somebody in an official capacity was involved in an, the aftermath of this in the sense that they were investigating this afternoon, Monday afternoon. They apparently had vehicles out searching for whatever it was that allegedly came down last when night. When you say vehicles, you mean law enforcement? Official vehicles of some capacity, and we're trying to identify them, if we have any listeners who live south of Chicago or who were south about 30 miles south in New Lenox Township who may have been witness to this uh, collection of vehicles near Parker Road, I think it was near Francis and Parker Road, uh, we would like to hear from those individuals. And most of all, if they were witness to anything last night in that area, we'd like to take a brief report from them either over our website, or over our hotline out here in Seattle.
0: All right. uh, Peter, you said one of the things you mentioned is image. Why did you say that? Um, Did they see substance? Yes. They saw substance to a craft.
2: Yes. The percipient, the observer we have talked to, is a pilot. And he said his instant Uh reaction was that it was an aircraft in trouble, on fire, leaving a very prominent trail of either smoke or some kind of turbulence behind it from his vantage point it was coming straight down and he said there's no way you could have missed it if you saw it cars on interstate 80 reportedly were slowing down to 10 and 20 miles an hour to look at this thing (laughs) they had that amount of time to observe it recognize that it was very unusual and slow their vehicles down so they could get a better look at it at a safer speed Uh, I've talked to some law enforcement people out in that area, and they confirm for me that a search was initiated, but uh, to the best of their knowledge, nothing was found.
0: Well, that means they had to have reports, other than from your reporting party. I mean, they don't send a bunch of cars out. How much, they said, okay, we did go to search for something. How many reports did they have?
2: Well, we didn't get into that, and I... I think, uh, based on subsequent information we've gotten, Art, I'm not sure that we would have gotten the whole story, frankly. There's some evidence that the FAA was apprised. Well, they were apprised of the incident. Earlier this morning, we, it is reported to us, they were, they were reporting that they had taken up to 30 reports with regard to this alleged incident.
0: Right. That's the FAA.
2: That is the FAA. Uh, they traditionally are very good with these things. They, they are very open. In fact, they're our best source of information. We have not talked to them on this one yet. We may, we may give them a call tomorrow. We thought we'd let the, uh, the dust settle a little bit on this one so we could get more information and more observers and more witnesses. Okay. But uh, this sounds like a good one, particularly in view of the fact that we have an almost identical report from Kansas City at, uh, within a few minutes of what happened allegedly just south of Chicago. Really? If there, if there are any witnesses in Kansas City, Missouri or Gladstone who last night about seven o'clock or so may have been witness to something coming down out of the sky, we'd like very much to hear from them after this program. Obviously, we can't answer the phones while we're uh, discussing all of this, but after the program, we'd like to hear from them, to hear what it was they saw, what it did, and where they were viewing it from, so we can try to triangulate on where the object came down over Kansas City, Missouri last night about 7 o'clock. It was apparently a pretty dramatic sighting, and I don't want to give out too many details on this one until we've gotten a few more reports on it, but... uh, It is intriguing. It may be coincidental. We're quick to admit that. But it is intriguing to note that the two incidents, one just south of Chicago and the other, Kansas City, Missouri, were at about the same time and very similar in nature.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, Similar descriptions, can you say that much?
2: Yeah. Bright bodies coming down out of the sky, uh, slightly different times, slightly different durations, colors were different but um, both of them pretty unusual. Now, of course, an astronomer or a skeptic or an obstructionist would instantly say, I would predict, well, nothing more than just a meteor, maybe the tail end of the Leonid meteor shower that the Earth mm. goes through every year about this time. It peaks about the 17th of November, but there are probably some stragglers that come in later on. Uh, but we're uncertain about that, and we'd like to get more information. Without the primary data, we really can't say anything for sure.
0: All right, I would like to know something. Uh, this week, we're having a very interesting thing occur. Um, eight planets are lining up in a straight line. Yeah. And so, what that is going to mean is that a lot of people who normally are not looking at the sky are going to be out trying to observe the lineup of planets. Yeah. And my guess would be you're going to get a, fl- a whole bunch of reports, but just mark me down as guessing that.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you know, the best thing that ever happened to UFO observations was banning smoking in buildings, hot tubs, skinny, <laughs> skinny dipping, <laughs> and comets. <laughs> you are our best, sure that's our right. best assistants. Yeah. We should pay them a salary. Uh, a lot of people are outside. That's exactly correct, Art. Um People, when they're outside, they obviously they dramatically increase their chances of seeing something unusual, and uh, that has been happening. I remember when Hale-Bopp was here, uh, we have a lot of really dramatic sightings, particularly Utah and Colorado. The night when uh, Hale-Bopp was at its brightest and we had that um, lunar eclipse, I think it was a Sunday night about the 24th, We had some really dramatic uh, events take place over uh, just north of Denver, also near Layton, Utah.
3: Sure.
0: So you've got to ask yourself, um, is it going on all the time? And the only difference is that people go out and see it? Yeah,
2: I believe it is. Yeah. Um, But people are frequently asking us, well, are you getting more calls or fewer calls? Are there more UFOs here or fewer UFOs? That is a very, very difficult question for us to answer. It's like casting a lure in a lake and catching one fish. Does that mean there are a lot of fish there if you catch the first one on your first cast? Well, you never know. It is a terribly difficult question to answer honestly and accurately. But we are getting some very, very bizarre reports, bizarre even by our measure. And that, that is really bizarre, of course.
0: Are you referring now to these two earlier uh, reports.
2: Well, conduct, they're unusual. Yeah, They're—I would consider them to be unusual. But we are getting, um, I would say, multiple reports on a weekly basis of multiple craft informations. And the reason I say some of these are good reports is that the people who are calling us appear to have just first-rate credentials. And moreover, they're following up with what we traditionally ask for, a brief written report. A couple paragraphs, that's all we ask for.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, in you fact, find that... more people willing to go on the record now? Yes. Even pilots and people from the FAA are uh, doing that. Maybe that's a result of a lot of good uh, PR that we're getting from your program and in the national press now and local and regional press. But, yeah, people are beginning to awaken to the fact that we're not all crazy ufologists, that we're sane, we're sober, we're pursuing something. We don't understand it. I'm the first to admit that. We do not understand what we're dealing with fully, but on a regular basis.
0: All right. Uh, Briefly, you said something rather intriguing about a report of a magnetic anomaly.
2: Yeah. What what have you got? I almost hesitate to even talk about it. Let me get my disclaimers in, first of all. Sure. First of all, I'm a pilot, former flight instructor. The one thing you teach a student pilot is if all your instruments fail, you can always trust your magnetic compass.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Also, I was born in Missouri, so these things I have to see with my own eyes. I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about magnetic anomalies, but we've had two now in two weeks up in the northwest. We got a call this evening from the Spokane area. Just one source, a gentleman says he has a mounted compass out in the Spokane area, and it deviated just recently, he claims, by about 25, I think he said 25 degrees. Oh, boy. Under, under normal circumstances, and we've heard no other reports of this. I want to emphasize that. Under ordinary circumstances, i just uh, make a mental note of it and not do anything with it. But we had a similar report on the 14th of November of who were driving in southwestern Washington. This was that Friday night when all those lights went over the northwest that I reported on your program oh, that yes. night. Oh, yes, of course. And days afterwards, we got a very interesting report from a gentleman who also has a ship's compass mounted on a fixed mount in his yard, and he reports that it has gone, on at least one occasion, cattywampus. I do not know the details of that. But the other thing he added is that when those lights were going over the northwest that Friday night, again, the 14th of November, um, a bunch of truckers on the interstate got on their CBs to report to one another that their magnetic compasses were going haywire.
0: Oh, my. So... All right, Peter, hold on. We're at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, we'll get your contact information on the air, okay? Okay. All right, Peter Davenport keeping us up on the latest. Chicago, Kansas City... And how's your compass tonight? Still pointing north? (laughs) Morning, everybody. This is Coast to Coast
4: AM.
5: Talk with Art Bell. From west of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, dial 1-800-618-8255. That's 1-800-618-8255. Now again, here's Art. Well, once again, here I am. And again, we
0: just heard a story about a pilot. Um who saw at about 1832 hours Central, near Chicago, Route 43, and apparently witnessed a large red fireball descend through solid overcast, continue to descend slowly to the ground in about 20 to 30 seconds' time. Um, and uh, that and a similar report in Kansas City. If you know anything about those, or you can uh, report a magnetic anomaly... Then we would like you to talk to Peter Davenport. Peter, how do they best contact you?
2: Yeah, the best way to reach us is on the UFO hotline in Seattle. The, t- the telephone number is area code 206-722-3000. We'd be grateful if people treat it as they would a 911 number. We are members of the 911 organization. Uh, don't be surprised if we're very busy when you call and all we're interested in is the information, not a lot of conversation. Sure. Or they can always send us messages over our website, that is www.ufocenter.com. We have a standardized report form there, and our email address is simply director at ufocenter.com. I think there's also a link from your website to ours. Art. There is, So yes. they can just go to yours and uh, connect to ours.
0: Yeah, I hear the phones going in the
2: background. Uh, It looks like it's going to be a busy night.
0: Yes. (laughs) All right, Peter, uh, thank you for the update, and uh, when you get details on all of this, please call me and we'll get it on.
2: Very good, and we're going to be putting about 40 raw reports on the 14 November event on our website here in the near future.
0: All right, Uh, if you had to sum up that event now, after all this time, uh, you would say what?
2: It was very dramatic. We still don't know what it was. I'm 50-50 both directions, but we've got some wild reports, and we're going to be putting a few of those on our website tonight. Good enough, Peter. Thank you. Thank You, you very much, Art. You take care.
0: Peter Davenport at the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle. Now, let us peruse a little bit of the news. In West Paducah, Kentucky... Three students now are dead. In the beginning, it was one. Then, uh, earlier today, another died. And then, about an hour ago, a third died. Five others injured. When a 14-year-old boy opened fire in a high school lobby at the end of a prayer meeting. A prayer meeting. Now, he apparently had warned a bunch of the students that something big was going to happen and warned them away from this prayer meeting so he was already planning something at this point and was and he was beginning to warn people and several in fact based on his warnings didn't go well he did with a 22 caliber uh, handgun semi-auto three spare clips of ammo, two rifles, and two shotguns, which he had claimed he was going to use uh, as props for a science project, so they let him in. If this is not uh, quickening news, and I don't know what is, maybe the second story, Tracking, uh, in Tennessee, a father walked into the police and confessed that he killed his four children. Anybody have any idea what's going on out there? We appear to be eating our young alive. They appear to be eating each other alive. It's horrid. AIDS Day today, they say now 30 million infected. That would be one in 100, I guess. That's quite remarkable. One in 100 worldwide. Hmm. I don't know. It's it's out of control. This is roughly double the number that they thought were infected. And so you've got to wonder, how do they suddenly decide that twice the number of people are infected with AIDS than previously thought?
6: How do they figure that out?
0: Are they doing this in private? studies with people who go in for surgery. I know they test there. I've been kind of puzzling about that. How they suddenly decide that double the number of people are infected uh, than originally thought. Now, I have not yet read the U.S. News and World Report, uh, November 24th edition, but apparently there's an article in there about some sort of um, a danger in our food supply. And I wonder if this article, I'm going to try and get hold of it, uh, references the Ed Dames type Ebola AIDS virus that he talked about in cattle. So I wanted to touch on that. Um, then this, from a listener in Spokane, Art Top of the Hour News. Scientists have discovered a new deadly virus in a remote section of Zaire. It seems to breed these things, doesn't it? The virus has been named the monkey pox virus. It is in some way related to smallpox. Scientists are not sure how fast the virus can be spread, and of course the way that it can be spread. And J.W., who sent this, said, is this the one? Uh, So there you have it. Uh, I'm going to take some calls between now and the top of the hour on any topic you want to talk about. And at the top of the hour, we're going to talk about who we are, where we came from. This is one of the most basic questions that I think most human beings would want to ask if they had some all-powerful being, the Creator, the person or persons capable of answering this question, we all want to know, where did we come from as human beings? Were we created by by God? Did we evolve with the hand of God involved? Uh, Is nature really God? Did we come out of some sort of soup in Africa? Well, I've got a man who will address all of this for you at the top of the hour, Lloyd Pye. It should be more than just a little interesting. And uh, one more time before I pick up lines here, and I'm about to, I will tell you that um, uh, that I'm offering. Everybody's been waiting all year long, and this is it. This is it. Uh, the art of talk and the quickening, the two books I've written, are available now through Christmas, maybe depending on supplies, um, you can get autographed copies. Now, this is the last time, (laughs) this is the last time I'm going to do this. I did promise earlier in the year that I would do it. Uh, So, if you want an autographed copy of either one or both of those books, call right now, because they have operators lounging around. 1-800-864-7991 one eight hundred eight six four seven nine nine one. 864 7991 This is the Christmas uh, final great opportunity to get an autographed copy of the book, and that's going to be it. one eight hundred eight six four seven nine nine one. 864 7991 East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Good morning.
7: Uh, hi, Art. Hello. Hi, this is Dorothy from Florida. Hello. Yeah, I just listened to your guest... And he was talking about that um, strange sighting in the sky. Yes. Well I, well, I for sure don't know exactly what it is, but I'm just going to tell you that in the Bible, there's a passage that says that there will be strange signs in the sun and, and in the moon and in and the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations.
0: Well, he, uh, of course, said uh, himself that they are trying to determine and cannot really answer whether there are more, or, uh, more sightings or fewer. So with reference to that passage... Um, I don't know. More of this or um, not so much the quality of the sightings up? A precursor to the final days, who knows? On my international line, you are on the air. Hello.
8: Hello, how are you?
0: Uh, I'm okay. Where are you calling from?
8: I'm calling from uh, 3 BC.
0: Okay, BC, welcome to the program.
8: Thank you very much. I just wanted to say thank you for all the work that you're doing and all the issues that you're bringing forward. And we up here in Canada have um, been following you closely in a group that's been doing a lot of work um, over the years on a number of issues to do with aliens, UFOs, and all that stuff up here.
1: Well, good for you. Uh, Yes.
0: You've just got to stay on top of it.
8: Well, I know. I think it's really important that uh, a lot of this stuff gets you know, out in the public eye, and uh, I think, you know, all the little groups that are carrying on in Canada, United States, and across the world, that uh, we need to persevere regardless of the, you know, so-called, well, I'll call it persecution that we endure from time to time.
0: Persecution is a fair word.
8: It's a fair word. <laughs> so I'm I'm just, uh, I'm happy that you have so many listeners and that you've brought your program forward. So well, I want to say thank you, and I have, uh, will be joining the uh, cruise on May the 10th.
1: Oh,
0: it's going to be an interesting one.
8: Uh, yes, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh,
0: all right, I'll see you there.
8: Thank you very much. Take care.
0: All right. yeah, right, that'll be interesting. All right, can you imagine Dr. Zahi Owas, who is like, he's a really nice guy, but he's kind of like a human time bomb with a very short fuse as well. <laughs> Daniel Brinkley, Graham Angock, Robert Bouval, Dr. Ed Krupp, maybe others, and I will... Tr- <laughs> I'm going to try to arbitrate all of this. That should be very interesting. East of the Rockies, you're on the air. Good morning. Hello? Goodbye. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Good morning.
9: Well, hello there, Art. How are you?
0: I'm uh, Just fine.
9: Uh, well, I think Novel loves me. I just, uh, we just bought 17 of your books today. You did what? We bought 17 of your books today. <laughs> Why would you buy 17? Well, I'm in the military, and sometimes we go away for quite a bit on, uh, on, uh, carriers, and, uh, I bought 17 books for some of the guys in the squadron.
0: That's uh, really nice of you.
9: Well, thank you very much. I'm in Chapter 7, and, uh, what I tell you, it's incredible, And uh, that kind of brings me to another point There's a fellow in Utah I'm calling you from San Diego And uh, we went to one of his uh, seminars His name is Jim Phillips I don't know if you ever heard of him No And uh, I think that would be a tremendous guest Well, what did he talk about? He talks about preparedness But it's a a different kind of preparedness It's it's mostly uh, attitudes And uh, you can do anything I went to the seminar with him In the North Pole, in fact About three years ago and uh, he taught Jim Lovell personally about uh, building some clothing and some uh, some winter survival, and uh, it's amazing.
0: Well, the astronauts all went through uh, dramatic survival training.
9: This guy is tremendous, and uh, I I I, I see him everywhere on the on the internet, and I think if you get a, you can get a hold of him. I know he listens to your show. uh,
0: Well, then he can get hold of me. I've got email, artbell at AOL.com, or you can send me a number or any manner of ways that we might be able to connect. Uh, Contact me, get me some contact information, and I will proceed from there. First time caller line, you're on the air. Good morning.
10: Hi, Art Bell. Hi. Uh, This is Deb Deb from Oakland. I'm listening to you on KSFO.
0: Yes,
1: ma'am.
10: And, um, I wanted to make a comment. I have been pathetically depressed ever since I listened to Ed Dame the other night. Well, I need to get a life. Well, no, However, I look, um, I love him. Don't get me wrong. And I love, oh, and I wanted you to know that both my cousin Pamela and I both love you and we share you with Ramona. <laughs>
0: She she's in the other room digesting that right now.
10: Oh, you know, Ramona, you know, we've seen your picture. You have nothing to worry about. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs>
0: anyway, um listen.
10: I just I, wanted to mention the the thing about it is it's my system of belief. So, I do believe that what he's saying could happen.
1: It could so, happen. It could happen.
0: But you've got to live your pray, life. Exactly. You've got to live your life day
10: today. I'm praying that it won't and therefore I'm going to go out and do the best I can and all that stuff that we normally do. And make sure we tune in every night at 10.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll keep you updated.
10: Loyalty and we just love you so and you're doing a very good job and we do take, you know, most things with a grain of salt just because you have to to... Keep going.
0: It is the nature of this program that you should take what you hear with a grain of salt. So, oh, and by some, the way, yes. I
10: wanted you to know, I found out about your program from the, a person that I believe is a man in black. Really? At the bookstore.
1: Huh.
10: I had read Communion, and uh, I had not gotten around to reading Transformation. And it had been years. Transformation had been out for years, but, you know, the fear... I had read Communion back in the late 80s and had never read Transformation until this year. It was New Year's Eve. I was at the bookstore over on Piedmont Avenue here in Oakland, and this man walked up to me tall and kind of pale looking, and he came up and said, I had the Transformation in my hand, standing in line, and he came up to me and he said, have you ever heard of Art Bell? And And then what was really funny was then I go to pay for the book, I turn around, the guy's gone now. Okay. <laughs> it was so strange. And his name was John.
0: Oh, he gave you his name?
10: His name was John.
0: Oh, of course. It probably. And then, oh, and ever.
10: the first time that my cousin and I ever listened to you on the Art Bell show was on about a Sunday, a week later... My cell phone happened to be on in my handbag in the dining room of her home. Yes. And the little phone rings. We're meditating. We're asking for guidance. You know, you do your own thing. Yes. And we're asking for guidance. My cell phone rings. We pick it up. It's this guy, John, calling me to let me know that Dreamland is on. I had never heard of Dreamland. (laughs) So, anyway, thank you for your time. We love you. Thank you for letting me vent. And, by the way, it's so cool talking to you.
0: Thank you and take care. Oh, my goodness. Uh I wouldn't like that one bit. Somebody walks up to you and makes a comment out of nowhere, leaves the name John, and then somebody who would have absolutely no way of knowing your cell phone number calls you up
1: uh, just uh, offhandedly one day about Dreamland. Very weird.
0: Wildcard line, you're on the air. Good morning.
11: Uh, good morning. How you doing, Art? Okay. Uh,
12: you know, I was listening uh to Peter Davenport a second ago. I didn't catch the top of the program, but did he mention uh because I saw something out in the jacuzzi last night about three forty eight in the morning,
6: uh it was about fourteen uh gray circular discs moving at a
0: All right, uh, well you need to call Peter
6: Devin. Yeah, I'm I've been trying to get through to him, but uh I was wondering if he had any reports over the Vegas sky. Um, this is Tony.
0: No, this is the first I've heard of this, Tony. And usually uh, I hear about things that occur in Vegas very
6: quickly. Very bizarre. There was about fourteen gray circular, uh, uh, circular objects that cruised over. I was sitting in the jacuzzi, and they were moving horizontally. It looked like they were about seventeen hundred feet up, and were cruising at about eight hundred. I estimated, guess about eight hundred miles an hour. All right. Well, very smoothly, and they moved apart, and then they closed back up together very quickly, about three times. And continued southwest. And if Peter ha- or if anybody has any uh, has seen that, what I saw, I would appreciate them if they call your program. And
0: all right, Appreciate all
6: right. your program. All
0: right, Tony. Thank you. And uh, get the report to Peter uh, because I worry that when you describe something you saw on the air and you're very specific about it, it doesn't give Peter then a way to filter because everybody has then heard the description, and it makes not as valuable the follow-up reports that he might get. So the next time you call, you should just say there was a sighting in Vegas last night, give the approximate time, and then give the details to Peter Davenport. Then it's like, you know, you don't uh, uh, get a whole bunch of witnesses together and question them, do you? And that is the effect that we have on the radio when we do something like that. And I don't want to uh, disqualify what otherwise might turn out to be a very valuable report. East of the Rockies, you're on the air.
13: Hi. Uh, Hello. Hi. Uh, this is uh, John from uh, Tennessee. Hi, John. Hi. Uh, I I caught your uh, Ed Dame show the other night, uh, at least the first half, when he, you know, gets to the good stuff. Yes. But then I, I missed the uh, last, I don't know, hour or so. And I want to know if any other the callers asked him about um, how his current theory jives with his old theory. Was there any uh, contradiction there?
0: Not that I know of, and I thought about the same thing, and I don't see any contradictions. Um, yeah. All of them can still work together, as a matter of fact. Really, it verifies a lot of what he said back at the very beginning.
13: Yeah what about um, you know he he kept he kept saying that it was about the uh, the something being dropped off, you know a uh, uh, pathogen. That's what it was. Plant pathogen. Yeah. Yes. Now is that
0: he's still uh he's, the other he, one? Yes, or? he says yes, it is still uh, occurring.
13: Really, it's going to be a double whammy then. I guess because you know I, I kept waiting for that question and I never heard it.
0: Or maybe what you know remote viewing is an interesting discipline. Yeah. And it might be that the death of the greenery that he perceived to be a plant pathogen might, in fact, be something from the sun. Yeah. So, I don't know. We we would have to ask him.
13: All right? Yeah, sure. Um, are you going to have him back so you can ask him that at some time?
0: Well, uh, he promises to do one more show.
13: One more show, huh? One more show. And that's what, that'll be it. That's what he says. I, I heard he's already got his bad bags packed.
0: That's what he says. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I, I appreciate it. Take care. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Turn your radio off, please.
1: Yeah. Number
11: one. Hello, Art. Yes. Hey, how are you? Fine. Great. Um, well, the first time I tried calling you, I thought it would take me much longer than it did. Where are you? I'm Robert calling from San Diego. Okay.
6: Okay, call. turn your radio off, please, Robert.
13: It's off. Thank you.
11: Okay. Um, yeah, I'm calling for two reasons. Uh, one, I was curious if you're ever going to have someone on the show regarding the Hollow Earth theory. I have had. You have had. Sure. I I haven't been listening for probably more than
0: a year. Or so.
1: Ah. Well,
0: I've been on for years. Yes, it is a subject we have covered. Fabulous. Can you um? Can you tell me the, the date and can I get a copy of that that show? Oh, huh, let's see. No, offhand, I can't tell you the date. We're dealing with years and years here. Okay. But I will try and come up with it and
11: get it on the air. Okay, and one more thing. Um, have you ever had anyone on your show regarding uh, the HIV-AIDS fraud?
0: Uh, well, I had Dr. Duisberg on. You did? Oh, yes. Oh, that's great. Have you ever um, uh, heard of the book The AIDS War by John Lauritsen? Yes. Yes, I'm very familiar. What do you think about this doubling of the numbers? Are you surprised?
6: You know,
14: I'm not surprised because I think the AIDS industry is getting rather desperate. As more and more people
11: find out what I consider to be the truth, they're, um, they're getting worried. Well, what is the truth? Well, I believe that basically the test itself is, is very unspecific and... um HIV has never been proven scientifically to be the oh. cause of any disease.
0: Well, they have definitely though isolated the HIV virus. Now I know exactly what you're saying. And I I've, I've heard a lot of testimony on all sides of this. But still, the doubling of the numbers, can you imagine that? <laughs> this is Coast to Coast AM. Stay right there. To Dreamland, Sunday nights at 9 on AM 1500 KSTP.
5: Talking to first time callers at area code 702 727 1222. That's area code 702 727 1222. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell from the Kingdom of Nye. That's the place. Here's Art. Now again, here I am. Good morning, everybody. Oh, where do you suppose we came from?
0: It is one of the great questions that all mankind would like answered. Did we evolve? were we created? Was there this slow evolution that occurred over thousands of years? Hundreds of thousands? Millions? These are questions uh, that are argued and argued and argued and every uh, side of course uh, says the science is on my side. My guest in a moment will endeavor to answer all of this. His name is Lloyd Pye and he has written a book called Everything You Know is wrong. <laughs> All about human evolution. He's an interesting guy and uh, I think you're going to enjoy this. So if I were you, I'd buckle in. Now, I have succeeded in getting my, myself behind commercially, so let me catch up. How are you going to shop this Christmas? You're going to go out and uh, uh, fight the crowds, get in the malls, fight those wild women have you ever seen that it's like a feeding frenzy sometimes at the malls? And it's been that way after Thanksgiving. The alternative is shopping by telephone, by mail. You don't even have to leave the house. You don't have to hassle parking. And you don't have to dive into the crowds. I suggest a Beijing Christmas. The Beijing Free Play Radio is uncontestably... The best emergency radio ever made. It's also a very good regular radio. No batteries. Don't plug it into the wall. It's got a crank on the side. Inside the Bayless Clockwork Generator. And here's the bottom line. It weighs seven pounds. It's full-size portable. Got a crank on the outside. It turns the Bayless Clockwork Generator. So you crank it for 30 seconds. And then... This radio plays AM, FM, shortwave for thirty minutes. Thirty minutes, folks. Here's the deal: buy one, Beijing. The price is one nineteen ninety-five. Buy two, it's one o nine ninety-five. Buy three or more. Now this is the way you ought to go, and the price is down to ninety-nine dollars and ninety-five cents each. And if you buy three, they will even gift wrap them for you hint hint call bob crane in the morning and get three on the way the number is 1-800-522-8863 that's 1-800-522-8863 the c crane company for christmas i'm sure that you've got at least one or two already have everything kind of people on your christmas list right Well, I'll bet they don't have their own private star. Oprah Winfrey, Tom Cruise, and many other celebrities have got theirs. And now, you can actually have a star officially named for someone on your gift list. I've got my own star. So does my wife. We can go out at night, look up at the sky, and say, there's Art Bell gazing down from the heavens. And look, 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 $35. You can have a star named for whomever you wish. All you do is call the International Star Registry now at 1-800-282-3333. They'll send a beautiful full-color parchment certificate of record. It is beautiful. Sky charts to help locate the star and a fascinating booklet on astronomy. The new star name is entered in the registry's book and recorded with the U.S. Copyright Office. For more information, call toll-free 1- 800 282 That's 1-800-282-3333. This year, give a gift that's truly out of this world. Out of this world, indeed. And graduated from, I guess it's Amite uh, High School in Amite, Louisiana. Am I getting that name wrong?
11: Uh, actually, you are. It's called Amite. Meet. A meet. Close Amite Close figures, Close all
0: right. Enough. Uh, went on to college at Tulane you were a punter and a running back. Any comments on the game last night?
11: Uh, which one?
0: Oh, Green Bay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
11: no, you, no, you that's okay that. for the. I don't want to. I don't want to cause trouble right away. I think it was a great game. Let it go at that.
0: Really cool. intriguing. All right, and then uh, you got to BS in uh, psychology. Right. And then somehow you went into the military and got involved in intelligence yes. work. There really is military intelligence.
11: No, there is not. <laughs> My experience is there is not. Of course, now I'm already in trouble.
0: Um, well, that's the very home of trouble. Uh, Lloyd, don't let it bother you.
11: Okay.
13: Um,
0: then somehow you got involved. How did you you began to study Zachariah Sitchin?
11: Um, actually, the, I, stu- I didn't find him until about 1990, unfortunately. I was, you know, like everyone else, trying to to make a living, and i I, he's not well-known and nearly as well-known as he should be, uh, I think, for a number of reasons, but for whatever reason, I was looking in the wrong places and didn't find him until 1990, but I had done so much research to that point on hominoids that as soon as I uh found him i knew that i was going to be able to construct a a new theory of evolution based on my own work my own extensive work in hominoids and his work a hominoid is hominoids are the creatures the upright uh, hair-covered primates that people see all around the world on a regular basis bigfoot sasquatch we're all familiar with here the abominable snowman yeti and uh, the himalayas and there are two other kinds that are dominant in other parts of the world that we're not as familiar with in the west but which are are equally uh prevalent in their areas different names same creature no differences there are four fundamentally different hominoid creatures out there uh, the The Bigfoot Sasquatch is a giant, seven to ten feet tall, weighing seven hundred to a thousand pounds. Mm-hmm. The abominable Snowman is called man size but they 're basically six to seven feet tall They weigh three hundred to six hundred pounds, but they 're very primitive as these creatures go they 're by far the most primitive. And their range is restricted to the Himalayas, which is as big as the United States, so they have plenty of room to roam in, but the others, the other three, are able to to move about a lot better, and they do. Hmm. The third kind is called Almas uh, because they dominate in the mountains of southern Russia, the Pamirs and the Caucasus, and that's what they're called in that area, but they exist uh, in other parts of the world as well. The Almas and the uh they put Sasquatch type, the giant kind. Both live in very heavy montane forests, the the deepest, densest forests that we have on the planet. That's where they tend to live. Do you consider there to be enough evidence uh, of the existence of these creatures
0: to uh, be talking of them as you are, as though they are a proven fact?
11: Well, the evidence is really overwhelming, actually. If you if you dig down into it, when they were first being discovered in the in the early fifties through into the middle 60s let's say they were taken pretty seriously the study was done by uh some anthropologists zoologists uh they ivan sanderson being probably the most prominent of that group but during that time stories would be written that were in mainstream media of that time books uh, magazines that would be equal to say um playboy of today they had stories in time newsweek life you know they were taken seriously And then when scientists began to be put on the hot seat, more or less, in being required to explain what these things were and how they could be out there and how they fit into the scheme of things. They began to be shuffled more and more off into the tabloids where they have uh, languished ever since. But yes, the evidence is is really overwhelming to anyone that looks at it with a, a, an even remotely open mind. And I mean, we can go over some of it during the course of our talk, but there, there's really no doubt in my mind, and I think no doubt in the mind of anyone who reads well, just part three of my book will do it, but if you, if you do any serious research into the subject there's absolutely no question that they're out there they have been there that they are in fact the native indigenous upright walking primate on planet earth
0: um let us go back now to the beginning and when i say that i mean quite literally uh in our discussion um it serves me up a little list of questions that i should ask you here and one is very very good what is wrong with creationism darwinism uh, in other words, you apparently have arguments against both of these
11: right well I, i'm almost
0: not... afraid you use it. theories um, what would you call
11: them well they're theories of course and and i i don't just uh have now you're in trouble arguments so. against them uh they have arguments against each other. Uh, as you know, they, they go and have been going nose to nose and toe to toe for a very long time now. That's right. And I think that the fact that they're both able to shoot such gaping holes in each other is a strong indication that they're both fundamentally flawed. I think if either one of them was absolutely correct, they would be, it would be like, uh, the, you know, one of them would be more or less like, uh, Einstein's theory of relativity where there's just absolutely no question uh, no no challenge no no one argues the point the fact that uh, creationists and if you've ever read creationist literature you'd be surprised at how good some of it is now not all of it of course but some of it oh, I know. Uh, particularly attacking the, the Darwinian paradigm Is very good, and and it makes a lot of sense, and and I I personally believe a lot what they have to say, especially as it deals with um, macroevolution versus microevolution, which we can discuss in more detail. Now, as far as what the Darwinists can do to the creationists in terms of the timeline of Earth, um, they just more or less flatten them because the creationists, uh, so many of them are stuck on that uh, six days creation 6,000 years ago. And really all you have to do is look at the Grand Canyon or know that the peak of Mount Everest is marine limestone to know that uh, the earth was is vastly older than 6,000 years ago. So the fact that they're able to shoot such holes in each other leaves i think an opening for a third alternative and that's what i've tried to you know provide and i believe that i am
0: well let's say it what are the major problems you you've mentioned a couple with creationism
11: well with creationism it's just the fact that what uh, the
0: hard science uh... the hard
11: yeah the hard science uh, answers that they have to the the idea of six uh, you know that the whole entire universe would be formed whole and intact within six days you know no changes no addendums uh it's obvious that that's not exactly what happened and uh as far as 6000 years ago that is not what it says in the bible but bishop james usher in the 17th century calculated the who begat who's in the bible hmm. and uh came up with a date, you know who so and so begat so and so who lived for so many years so if you if you add up all the begatens yeah, you get to a certain and, and number yeah and ironically of years. the the 6000 year uh anniversary was this past october so uh, that has come to be taken almost literally as gospel, even though it was written by a man, uh, one guy, calculated by one guy in the uh, 17th century. So um, that... Uh, again for the reasons that I just quoted is is pretty easy I think to knock a hole in or knock down even I, I well you'd get you know you'd
0: point. get lots of argument about it but for the sake of this one let's say okay fine okay let's move to darwinism now darwinism, darwinism is pretty much supported by hard science uh, um, the, the process of uh, of evolution
11: well, they, you know, they, they tell us that, and it's uh, it's very easy to just listen to the din and the drum of it and, and just come to shrug your shoulders and say, oh, yeah, well, I guess they're right because there's so many of them saying it. But well, where are the holes? The, pro- the problem with it is this. Uh, there, there are two words you need to understand, microevolution and macroevolution. Okay, define them. Please. All right. Microevolution is what Darwin actually found in the Galapagos. Now, it's this. He, he noticed that on the different islands that he visited... In several of the animals, but two in particular, in finches, which have come to be known as Darwin's finches, and in the giant tortoises that you see, he noticed that the finches that lived on the different islands had adapted themselves to eating different foods that were were dominant on the islands. They would eat fruits. They would eat insects. They would eat seeds. Mm -hmm. And their beaks had been altered to accommodate that diet, longer, thinner, Shorter, fatter, really heavy for the seeds. Now they're still finches. They're still fundamentally the same finch that flew out from South America, however many million years ago, two or three million years ago, and 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 uh, founded the line of finches that became Darwin's finches. But the uh, the beak changes were so noticeable that it gave him the idea. And then he noticed with the tortoises that there were two fundamental kinds: those that browsed on bushes that grew close to the ground had shells that came down the way normal turtles do and, and met close to the bottom shell. The tortoises that browsed on bushes that grew up, you know, a couple feet in the three or four feet in the air, they had these big notches in the front of their shells so that their neck could rise up. Hmm. And he looked at that and he said, now, wait a minute. We're looking at this much change in two to three million years or however many million years these islands have been here. We know they're fairly recent. So in the grand span of cosmic time, which at that point they knew was moving into the hundreds of millions of years, it's established now at around 500 million years for complex life on Earth, and, and that span, then entire whole bodies should be able to change, and that, that's fundamentally what Darwinism is about. Now, that is called macroevolution, so understand, microevolution is change in a body part a visible or an external body part size generally some shape <clears throat> whatever but like the beaks or like the notches in the in the turtle something ship. visible some, some but it, in a part a small part the, that the creature stays fundamentally the same but some part of it adapts to the environment in some superior way okay now macroevolution, on the other hand is the change of an entire body into another form it's like sea worms turning into fishes Fishes turning into amphibians, amphibians turning into reptiles, reptiles right. turning into mammals, mammals turning into us. So you see that sequence. So there you have to have wholesale changes internally. You have to have this digestive systems changed. You have to have breathing systems change. You have to have reproductive systems change. You have to have some major structural realignment. Now, that is what is missing from the fossil record and that is what is missing from the world around us. Now if you understand that in the the span of 500 million years that we're talking about, there have been upwards of a billion species that have existed, and as you know, probably there have been five major extinction events, so there's been a lot of wipeouts. There's between five and 10 million species alive now. So you would assume that at some point, and, and certainly in our own existence, it would be visible for us to see a a gill turning into a lung or or a forelimb turning into a wing or or a scale turning into a face. Something in the process of change that we could identify and say, ah, gradualism is in fact a real workable uh, uh, thesis. And there is no evidence? None none that anybody can point to and say this is unequivocally, unarguably, Darwinism gradualism in action there's nothing out there that I'm aware of or I think anyone else is aware of now what you will hear you'll hear a lot of arguments and I've been getting some of these arguments from Darwinists who come to hear me speak and they'll jump up and say well you can see the change in bacteria and microbes and you know, I was
0: about to point that yeah, out
11: yeah well you, you know you can but there, a lot of that is just speciation which is a species modifying itself when you really boil it down it nearly always can be explained, excuse me, in terms of microevolution. It is still fundamentally the thing—the thing that it was. It still reproduces. It still breathes. It still digests, it, or, or you know, whatever it does, even at the at the microscopic level, it's fundamentally the same. It's not turning into something else. There's just no record of it, Art. I know. I okay, know you'll what, get that argument what, what about that the no
0: what about the virus level, uh, Lloyd? Uh, if we're talking, for example, about since it's in the news lately, we right. could uh, clamp onto the AIDS virus right and we could talk about its ability to change right uh, and to meet the drugs that are used against it right. and uh, and modify itself
11: Well, I, within the world of a virus and we're talking, they can go down as little as a half a dozen genes, so we're talking something. Minutely small, and and not really um, alive in the sense that it can't reproduce itself the way you know. It, you could even argue that they're not living, and some people do, in as much as they need a a living host in order to live. But put that argument aside, it changes to another form of itself. And it has a new beak, it has a new shell, it has some new modification in its body functioning, but it's still a virus, it lives as a virus, it's identif- identifiable as a virus. Now, you show, you find a virus that suddenly makes the leap from being a parasite, being, needing to live off of something else. If you show a virus that can suddenly Feed itself from its environment and ah, reproduce itself. Then you have now to... you've got you've got macro evolution. I you see what I'm saying. Yes, I do. Okay, so there you go. And and anytime they anytime you break down one of their arguments the way I just broke that one down you will in, inevitably find that it is micro evolution that they're foisting off as macro evolution. So you're saying creation
0: uh, has too many holes in it you're saying darwinism has too many holes in it right you're saying there's a third explanation
11: i believe that there is a third fundamental explanation for for all of it now as far as what we're talking about now the beginnings of life that I don't have an answer for, frankly. I, I, I do not have that worked out. All I know is that what we're currently taught
0: you say I'm sorry when you book, say everything when, we know yeah, When you say oh. the beginnings of life, right? do you mean human
11: life? All life. All life. All life. human life we can talk about later. We were, now, we we're talking about all life. When you look at all life, here is the history of life on Earth at around four billion years ago, quite unexpectedly at a time when the earth was still very plasmic and was fundamentally nothing but a ball of lava. It had just begun to coalesce out of the primordial cloud, right. again, which happened at around 4.5 billion years ago. So we're looking at a half a billion years, a long time to just say that, but relatively speaking fairly short, when the earth was horribly, horribly inhospitable. The first form of life on Earth appears, and that is prokaryotic bacteria. All right, hold virus.
0: hold it hold it right there. We're at the bottom of the hour, uh, so we'll get back with Lloyd Pye and our four and one half billion year trip to where it all began in a moment. This is Coast to Coast AM.
5: calls on the wild card line at area code 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. This is Coast to Coast AM from the Kingdom of Nye with Art Bell. It is, and we will go back four and one
0: half billion years ago and try and discern from what life came in Lloyd Pye's opinion. And, of course, we will take your calls eventually, but this is one fascinating topic. I guess it is actually one of mankind's oldest questions once we came. I have written two books called The Art of Talk and, of course, more recently, The Quickening, which is on the uh, New York Times business bestseller list, uh, number four or five, something like that. And all year long, I have said the final time that I'm going to sign books, is going to be Christmas. That time is now. Uh, They've actually still got The Art of Talk. It is the first one I wrote about, oh, talk radio, and my beginnings, and uh, all the photographs showing my parents and my history, and blah, 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 blah. It was autobiographical, and I think quite a good book, and uh, extremely blunt. It still has me in trouble. (laughs) And my second one, of course, The Quickening. And so here is the deal. Between now and Christmas only or until we run out, which is a distinct possibility way before Christmas, you can get my books individually for uh, autographed copies, mind you, $24.95 plus shipping and handling. Uh, or you can get them both and save money at fifty two ninety, which includes shipping and handling. And I'm just going to give you the number, and I'm telling you, when supplies are gone, they're gone. That's it. I I did promise I would make that offer at Christmas time. That time is now. The number is 1-800-864-7991. 1-800-864-7991. Back now to Lloyd Pye. Lloyd, four and one-half billion years ago, what was the Earth like?
11: four and one half billion years ago the earth was just coalescing out of the primordial cloud it was it had taken its shape the sun had ignited but it was basically a seething mass of lava and about 500 million years later at around four billion years it was essentially the same but it was in well into the cooling process so we had some hardening crust we had some steam we had some water you know it was beginning to cool down and that's uh, four billion years ago is when life first came out. It might help if we go over what we're all taught. I was taught this uh, 30, 40 years ago, and everyone's been taught this since. We're all taught that life began in the early primordial seas when we had oceans. I'm sure everyone out there listening will remember that, that somehow inorganic molecules uh floating around in that, that uh, prebiotic soup or prebiotic sea found themselves somehow on a kind of chemical yellow brick road that allowed them to skip along, linking electrons and forming themselves into ever more complex inorganic molecules until somehow they reached a a, a magic threshold and were struck by... I was taught a lightning bolt. That's right. People are taught other things that somehow triggered them into a living thing, swirled them into a living thing. lightning bolt hits them, and whammo, you have this... This alive creature. Now, that has been in as much as the, the very largest single group of inorganic molecules compares to the very smallest conceivable, like we were talking about a virus, the very smallest conceivable actually living thing that, that wasn't a virus that actually could, could reproduce and could feed itself out of its environment. The, the very largest Inorganic molecule compares to the very smallest living thing the way um, a a uh, small rural village would compare to New york city in in terms of complexity mm-hmm. it 's just there 's no way that that happened. It has been analogized thusly by saying that the likelihood of that, it's called spontaneous animation, the real true likelihood of spontaneous animation is equivalent to a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and correctly assembling a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. <laughs> so it, it didn't happen that way. Uh, the odds on it are just so astronomical. But over and above the fact that it, it couldn't happen the way we are taught, it didn't happen because everyone that knows anything about this knows that the first life form to actually appear on Earth was a bacteria, not a virus or a virus-level living thing. Right. A very advanced creature, relatively speaking, a, a single-cell bacteria nonetheless, with, but without a nucleus. So it's called a prokaryo, prokaryotic bacteria. Now, they exist today. Four billion years later, in, ex- in fundamentally the same forms that they existed in when they first came. Basically unchanged. Un- basically unchanged. Blue-green algae, uh, cyanobacteria, um, there are some other kinds as well. Uh, are th- th- what's interesting about it is not one kind came. Everyone would assume, well, yeah, well, if when life started, surely it was one kind. They have recently found out within the last decade that two kinds came. Not one, two. The archaea and the true bacteria. So that was a big shock, needless to say, that what they had assumed for a very long time was one kind of creature. When they they got able to break it down into its its uh, at its DNA level, they found that whoa, we've got two things here, not one, two. And that's your first living life form. They they had maybe um, several hundred strands of DNA. They were filled with ribosomes, which are in fact the size of of viruses. So. There were hundreds of times bigger than, than viruses, so this is a well advanced creature that comes to Earth, so that tells us right away that the first life to come to Earth certainly certainly did not develop here. there was no time for it, certainly it couldn't have gotten to that level of complexity in five hundred million in only five hundred million years in nothing basically but lava as a as a in an incubator, so it just didn't happen. Now, because there are those who would say, "Now you are arguing creation." Well, (laughs) I'm just saying that it did. Life did not come here the way we are taught. That's all I'm really saying. I'm saying that it if it did come here, obviously from someplace else, and wherever it came from, it existed millions, billions of years earlier than when we first appeared on Earth. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Where it came from, where that first spark of life came from, to make that first thing. Yes, no one can say. I can't say and anyone else can. And I'm waiting for the day that someone can, can uh, make a case that is convincing. Okay. You, does I, leave the door open. Oh uh, yes. Are you,
0: saying, are you saying that all things then came from that first thing?
11: Yes, that, that is the indication that we have because we all share the same genetic code. All plants, all animals, when you break it down to the, to the gene level, you can take genes from a plant and put them in our bodies and they'll function. You can take genes from our bodies and put them in plants and they'll function. Mm -hmm. So that, we all share the same basic genetic code. So yes, we all spring from a common life source. So that would argue for some kind. There is a mechanism. The, the bottom line for my cases is this, there is a mechanism out there, Art. There is. I don't know what it is. Nobody else does. What I'm saying is what we're being taught is inaccurate. But, we haven't looked far enough. We do not have the answer. Okay. But you seem to argue against
0: yourself in some cases uh-huh. uh, because you suggest, okay, something came here from elsewhere, uh-huh. a fairly complex something from which all things sprang right uh now that would indicate some sort of evolutionary definite evolutionary process you're only arguing the difference in the beginning Uh, well
11: no there's two parts to it there's the beginning and i'm saying that that we don't know i don't know no one knows and and certainly the the possibility of a divine creation is not out the window something happened but in hearing how unlikely in hearing how unlikely that spontaneous animation whether on this planet or some other planet 10 billion years earlier still you've got the problem of the tornado through the junkyard how do you explain going I mean, molecules are molecules the universe over it should be so how do you go from inorganic molecules to an organic life form containing millions of different inorganic molecules magically arranged so that they function as a living thing uh i don't know nobody knows and all i'm saying is what we're taught is not correct it didn't happen as simplistically as we're taught, now we're taught that because it's simple. it's simple, because it's simple, and so they, you know, everybody just takes it. Oh, oh okay, that's what happened, and, and we move on. But did, you you, know?
0: you argue though that there can be no natural process of evolution that accounts for our presence.
11: No, I don't I don't even argue that either. What no, I'm don't. saying is, no, no. What there is a mechanism. Life does pr- progress into higher forms, but, but what I'm saying is that on Earth. If you read the fossil record, if you just read the fossil record for what happens, here's what happens. When things are wiped out, we've had five major extinctions with collisions, with asteroids or whatever, uh, comets maybe. But something in the five separate occasions in the history of Earth that we are very well aware of has wiped out between 80 and 90 percent of all life on the planet. Hmm. And that's like wiping the slate clean in terms of the fossil record, and the fossil record gives us a very accurate account of what what's happened.
0: Well, I was certainly aware of the supposed KT event.
11: Well, that's that's the last one. It's 65 million years ago, the Cretaceous extinction that wiped yes. out the dinosaurs. But there have yes. been four others prior to that. What are those? Uh, Any. Uh well one of them is called the Triassic. That was that was the first big one. The Permian at two twenty five wiped out most of uh, like ninety, ninety five percent. Uh but but the point is at the end of each time here's what you get in the fossil record. You have a few thousand years where nothing happens, there's just sort of nothing going on. Earth is allowed to sort of restabilize itself. And then suddenly species begin to appear like popcorn, just like they did in the first time they came, which was the Cambrian explosion. And and Darwinists really have to dance around the Cambrian explosion and all these other things because what happens is this. Suddenly, in a very, very short time, the ecological niches are being refilled by fully formed, ready-to-go males, females, predators, prey, armor, fangs, cl- you know, whatever At every level, they come whole cloth, ready to go, ready to reproduce. And what I call it in the book, what I say, and I know that this is going to make it a chuckle out of you, I say it's like cosmic dump trucks are out there. And they get the word that, hey, life needs a new batch of, I mean, Earth needs a new batch of (laughs) life.
0: Now you're back to creationism. (laughs) Well, well, not
11: necessarily. It could be that we're being managed, that we're, you know, we're like an aquarium.
0: Well, I I didn't say
11: by... By whom? Yeah, well, there you go. And and that moves into the, the latter parts of the book. But that's right. By whom? If the cosmic dump trucks are real, and if you read the fossil record fairly and objectively, that's about all you can conclude. Because what the scientists try to say is that there's something called punctuated equilibrium this is how they try to attach an addendum to darwinism darwinism understand is is the gradual increase of everything from simplicity toward ever higher complexity correct well it's obvious to anybody that reads the fossil record that that didn't happen that that does not happen what actually happens is these these bursts these absolute explosions of life forms fully formed life forms on earth when required so what they try to say is that there is an, uh, like an alternate theory or an addendum called punctuated equilibrium. It's
0: like all the fish in the aquarium die, and suddenly
11: uh, somebody
0: goes out and buys a whole bunch and puts them back in the aquarium. Exactly. Exact
11: whole, whole new batch of fish, new kinds, everything. and And it's like, oh, wow, look at this. And the way they explain it, well, punctuated equilibrium That's has that. happened to this aquarium. Suddenly life knows, it just knows, that it's time to hit the accelerator, and start expanding exponentially all over the place, all at once, everywhere, into every ecological niche. That the survivors, whatever they are, somehow begin to absolutely disobey every rule of Darwinism, and they begin to turn themselves into multitudes of creatures, not just the next step up, but all at once becoming 10, 15, 20 different things. The, the survivors it's the only way to explain what happens well you know that that doesn't make sense that's not believable but again it's like you know they they can't they have to say something they have to come up with something they have to fill that hole so they have filled that hole in the logic with punctuated equilibrium but the truth is cosmic dump trucks make more sense more 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 intrinsic sense than punctuated equilibrium does and i'm not trying to really sell the cosmic dump truck idea, I'm just saying, I'm just pointing out that what we're told is not accurate, doesn't make sense, and is really not believable when you look at it very closely.
1: Hmm. So,
11: what would be your best
0: guess? Do you have one?
11: Uh, no, I really, I. I the, it's the old thing about the more you know, the more you know you don't know, and the more I study it, and the more I look at it, the more baffled and confused I am it looks to me if I just give a guess if I just throw this out it looks to me as if maybe we are being managed like a giant aquarium just given the facts as I see them and as I read them that's how it looks and and I mean that goes all the way back which really kind of sends a chill up your spine given what we're going to talk about later vis-a-vis how we came to
3: be here
13: um
11: the missing
0: link the missing, link. the missing link, okay, the missing link
11: yes, yeah. okay, here we go. Um, if you if you forget all what we've just talked about, the beginnings of life and all that, and you move into humanity, how did we get here let's let's talk about that. What we're told by anthropologists is that we developed from a series of creatures that lived on earth that are called prehumans. that's what they call them. They're two fundamental kinds. they're the Australopithecines and then there are the early homos. Now, homo in scientific terms means man, so that that explains uh, why they're they're trying to signify that we're becoming more men. The Australopithecines start at around four million years ago. Forget four billion when life came. Now we're down to four million. million. Four million, And that starts with uh, Australopithecine afarensis, which is the kind that Lucy, we all have heard about Lucy, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Sure, sure. Also found by Donald Johansson in the AFAR region of Ethiopia in 1974. So that group, and then there's Australopithecus africanus, and then there's robustus, and there's Boise. There are two fundamental divisions there, africanus and afarensis, are fundamentally upright walking chimpanzees. Their heads are basically chimpanzees. Robustus and Boise are upright walking gorillas. They have the wider faces, the longer faces. They have sagittal crests on the top of their heads. That's that ridge of bone that gorillas have. Mm-hmm. hold the big chewing muscles. So you have upright, at four million years ago, you have two sets of creatures, the upright walking chimps, the upright walking gorillas but we know they were upright walking because we have Lucy's pelvis we have her hip bone we have her knee joint all of which are very human and at 3.5 million years ago we have the tracks left at the ashfall at Laetoli in Tanzania of the two hominids walking across this ashfall volcano had laid out a layer of ash they walked across it it looks like a male and a female a larger set and a smaller set walking side by side, and then more ashes came out of the volcano, covered those, and miraculously Mary Leakey and her team found them in 1978. Mm -hmm. So we know, we know, at 3.5 million years ago, fully, fully upright. Lucy is at 3.2, fully, fully upright. So the creature that we supposedly evolved from becomes upright at some point in time between 8 million years and 5 million years ago that's what we're taught that there is a branching between true the a true uh ape-like creature that is our common ancestor and part of the branch goes off and becomes gorillas and chimpanzees and orangutans Mm -hmm. and baboons and the other branch is us and the first twig on that branch is the australopithecus afarensis lucy group but they don't look human they're very distinctly not human. They have much more robust bones than we have. They have heads that, again, looks like chimps. Their arms are much longer than ours and hang down around their knees. Do we know yet anything about their DNA? Uh, no, we do not. They've not sequenced that DNA. No recoverable? No recovery yet, no. Okay. no. Now, uh at around 2 million years ago, and these are very general terms, but at around, we go from 4 million years for 2 million years, let's say, the Australopithecines dominate, and then we begin to appear the, the homos. You have Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo archaic, mm-hmm. Homo neanderthalensis, which is Neanderthal man, and then you have Cro-Magnon man, basically modern man, appearing at 120,000 years ago. So you have these four these four homos, habilis, erectus, archaic, and neanderthal, and then suddenly whammo at 120,000 years ago, you have something, us, that looks absolutely nothing like them. You have a really nice sequence, in fact, from the australopithecines into the homos. You see their brains growing, but everything looks fundamentally the same on them except their brains are growing bigger. Hmm. Microevolution. Their heads are all fundamentally the same shape here's what it looks like you've all seen the pictures I'm sure in National Geographic and elsewhere their brow they have no foreheads their foreheads slant back from their brow ridges their brow ridges are huge thick uh, just, just like a gorilla or a chimp huge brow ridges large round night vision eyes you get those large, round night vision eyes because you need more uh, rods in your retinas, and so you're going to get those big, and those are, in fact, primate eyes.
0: All right, we well, have... uh, here's a good place to break it off, okay. and uh, we will resume after the top of the hour, so uh, take a rest. live Pie is my guest, and he's telling us, I think, how we got here, or he's going to try to. Uh, he's told us so far how we didn't get here. More to
3: come.
5: Art Bell in the Kingdom of Nye. Dial area code 702-727-8499. That's area code 702-727-8499. Please limit faxes to one or two pages. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. It is, and here I am. Lloyd Pye is my guest,
0: and boy, it's going to be interesting when we get the phone lines open. Lloyd says, Look at creationism, and it, it just can't be. Uh, not as described anyway in the Bible, and as many people of the Bible would believe it. Look at uh, a creation, uh, and there's holes. Giant, gaping, impossible holes. But then look at Darwinism. Look at the process of evolution, and there are equally large, impossible holes, and he has come up with a theory that uh, we're about to hear about regarding how we all arrived here, how it all came to be, and his theory suggests that there were kind of, uh, at various points uh, on Earth, cosmic dump trucks, if you can imagine that, that literally... Uh, plopped down upon the earth at various times, all these various life forms as we basically see them, that we see a little bit of change, uh, but nothing that would describe the kind of change required to fit uh, the theory of evolution. It simply doesn't work. He has a third theory, and we'll talk to him about it shortly. As we approach Christmas... The people at the American Gold Rose Company are back. And here comes their popular collection of everlasting flowers. Imagine this. Real roses dipped into 24 karat gold and frozen in time for all time perfect and just right for the holidays. Now, how do they do that? It is about a 21 or 22-step process. But they do it, and they are beautiful. The classic rose is first. $49.95, 11 inches long. Then the Hollywood Elite, actually $65. And you can send that special someone a long-stem gold rose, 17 inches long, covered with gold. Or just order the original rose. Simple, no leaves, but again, covered in gold. And the price, thirty nine ninety five. All three genuine roses, gold-dipped, delivered in a decorative
15: Christmas box. It's the perfect
0: gift. But there's even more. If you buy any two roses now, you receive a free Christmas pendant made of genuine mistletoe leaf and, of course, dipped in 24-karat gold. What else? A $23 value. The American Gold Rose Company. Call them now at 1-800-458-7134. What a gift. one 800 Four five eight seven one three four Alaska or Hawaii or Canada, you must call area code 918 687 Allow two weeks for delivery. The video's been featured on Extra and Strange Universe, but you only got a little piece here, you get it all. You can get it through this offer only. one eight hundred five ten. 3420. Area 51. The Alien Interview. 1-800-510- 3420. Call now. All right, back now to Lloyd Pye, uh, who is in uh, Louisiana, by the way, aren't you?
14: Right, Louisiana.
0: Okay. Um, So, we've got two grand theories uh, adhered to, preached uh, about, and um, uh, paradigms, really, uh, that scientists hang their hats and their careers on, and um theologians uh hang theirs on and you're saying both of them are essentially wrong
11: everything they know is wrong that's that's what i'm saying
0: <laughs> well uh you're going to be quite a target when we open the phones
11: i imagine so but i that's been the case up to now and i you know i knew what i was getting into when i started it. okay hominoids uh, well, actually, if you don't mind, why don't we finish the uh, pre-human uh, fossil record? Because I was Go making right sure ahead. the missing link uh, sure. connection, sure. and I'm I'm near to doing that. If you look at the four Australopithecines and the four Homos that we are told lead into us, that we evolve from, right. and that are sequentially leading toward us, you don't see a human bone in there at all they all look as i was saying they have sloping foreheads all of them if you if you look art seriously at the pictures if you cut those pictures up if you take the four australopithecines the four homos leading up to uh magnons to humans and you take all nine pictures and you put them on a desk and you shuffle them and you bring in any third fourth fifth sixth grade or whatever and you say pick out the one that doesn't fit every one of them will move the human one aside. It's that obvious to anybody. Their their foreheads slope back, they have these huge brow ridges, these huge round night vision eyes, these very, very large nasal openings. These mouths that stick off their faces. In other words, it would have required macro uh, evolution macro, which, which you, you say know, is it's absolutely. Not, impossible. It's not a it's a transition within that group, the Australopithecines and the homos, you can argue that as a transition, a micro evolutionary transition. But what you need to go from Neanderthal to human or from Homo erectus to human or, or anything to human. What you need there is a transformation, a macro evolutionary jump, which is not what happened. So what, what I'm saying is the missing link is any bone in that pre-human fossil record that looks actually human. And there's not one in it. There's never been one in it. And of course what they, what they will tell you, what the, the scientific establishment says is this. Well, there was them and now there is us. So obviously, somehow, some way, we transitioned from them. Well, we transformed from them. So they say, well, we're going to find it. Even though we've not found it, we've been looking for it for 140 years. Right. We have not found the missing link yet, but by golly, we're going to find it because it has to be there because we do not allow the concept of outside intervention. So without that as a mechanism, it has to have been a natural process and even though there is no evidence for it on the horizon, no evidence of common sense just to look at it, any child will tell you that we do not fit with that sequence. Uh, nonetheless, we're gonna find it. Well, they're not gonna find it. It doesn't exist. It's never existed. It's not gonna exist. There is no missing link, never was, never gonna be. So the argument then becomes, well, if, if humans did not segue out of that, out of that group, those two groups. Right. And we're out of the flow chart. What made those bones? What left those bones behind? How, how did they get here? And that's where the hominoids, which is part three of my book, comes in. The hominoids are the upright, walking indigenous primates that, that I told you, you know we talked about earlier. But you might refresh their memories. Okay, uh, um, full... Around the world, there are four fundamental types of creatures that are called hominoids. There are... Bigfoot, Sasquatch, there's the abominable snowman, Yeti, there's another kind called Almas, and then there's a fourth kind which we didn't describe before, but they're called Agogwis. They are pygmy-sized. They're about four feet tall, weigh about 200 pounds, and they live in the jungles of the world. All right, where, here's where I've got to pin you to the wall and say, where
0: is there any archaeological evidence of the existence of hominoids?
11: Well, the archaeological evidence are is their bones that we are told are our ancestors, which are in fact their ancestors. When people describe them, understand, when people describe them down to a T, they they describe the bones of the pre-human fossil record. They, whenever they see them, and there are hundreds of these sightings, thousands of these sightings on records from uh, on record from around the world, literally around every continent except the you know Antarctica. They are out there, and, and people see them, and they describe them, and they describe them the same wherever they see them.
0: Okay, but there's not one, not one, that's been captured.
11: Wrong. They have been captured, okay. they have been killed, they have been enslaved. There's a lot of records of that, okay? For example, we have the famous Roger Patterson film of 1967, all right? Mm-hmm. Roger Patterson took that film, and here, here's it, that film has probably been looked at maybe second only to the Kennedy assassination film of people trying to figure out how did he fake it or is it real? Sure. But it's only, it's only a film, though. Well, it's a film, but here are the things that you see in that film. You see a creature who's... Shoulder muscles and thigh muscles, the sun is shining in such a way that as she walks along and moves along, you can see her muscles rippling under her skin. Now, a person in a suit, you can't glue the suit on a person's skin and get that effect. The only way you get that effect is if it is, in fact, skin attached to muscle in a living, natural way. What you also see is an arm, a very long, a naturally long arm, swinging down around her knees with an elbow joint that articulates fully as she walks, but in a way that no possibility of a human in a suit articulating an elbow in that Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. What you also see is breasts as she turns that sway perfectly naturally. If it was a person in a suit, That would, it would look like those silicone jobs as she turns. Yes. An unnatural look. More importantly, she left a track that sunk an inch into very hard packed sand of a creek bed. Uh, the, the sand was, was very hard and she sank an inch and they had people come right beside her that weighed 200 pounds and they sank about a quarter of an inch. So we know she weighed between six and eight hundred pounds. But Patterson himself knew what he had and he went right out of the woods and he called every zoo, every museum, every university begging in the area, begging them to send experts out with tracking dogs. Now, they, they don't go today. They didn't go then. They don't want to deal with it because they know it's a real phenomenon. Nobody would go. But if you're faking a, a hominoid sighting, The last thing you're going to ask for is dogs, because dogs, these creatures have very powerful odors, and dogs shy away from them, and it upsets them even tracking dogs, Mm. whereas if it's a person in a suit, they'll get right on it. But also experts can tell, you know, you just don't want experts are dogs. When it's a fake scene scenario, they'll always say they can't quite remember where they were, they won't tell anybody where it was. Patterson didn't do that. He did all the right things, but he just couldn't get anybody to go out there and take a look at it. So that, in every way, I think, measures up to the test of reality. There was the the famous Minnesota Iceman, which was uh, carried around in an ice tomb for uh, about a dozen years by the man who killed it named Frank Hansen. Now, I saw that when I was a young man with perfect eyes, and I believe it was real. Ivan Sanderson, the very famous zoologist of the 50s and 60s who wrote numerous books about cryptozoology, got three days to study it up very, very close and personal. And he wrote a long, detailed analysis of it in very technical terms, much of which I quote in the book. And anybody that can read that and think Sanderson didn't know what he was seeing and didn't know what he was talking about... Um, it, it, it baffles me that people can read this and say, oh, well, this, this guy didn't, this was just a rubber and wax dummy. I mean, it wasn't a rubber and wax dummy. That was a dead living thingling. It had the blood streaming out of its wounds, blood and plasma up to the top of the ice. You can see hair uh, all in its, in its skin that it was just perfect. I mean, there's just no way. And you read the report and you know. Okay, you're saying these
0: are our
11: ancestors no I'm not saying that at all You're I'm not. Saying. those left the bones in the pre-human fossil record that we are told are our ancestors in oh. other words we're told by anthropologists these these skeletons here are, are ours and what I'm saying is those skeletons are the skeletons of dead hominoids because they they match hominoids. They have the big, robust bones. They have the arms that go down to their knees. All those pre-human, understand, those pre skeletons, they all have arms that go down around their knees. And then suddenly, overnight, you get Cro-Magnons, much thinner bones, shortened arms, foreheads, flattened faces, small noses, chins, long necks, everything different. Everything different overnight at around 120,000 years ago in the fossil record. So what I'm saying is that the hominoids provide a perfectly plausible explanation for where the so-called pre-humans come from. And if I'm right, and if they do, and if if they are, in fact, the living, indigenous, upright, walking creatures of planet Earth, we humans are left off the flowchart of our own fossil record. And if we are... And we don't appear until 120,000 years ago. The question then becomes, where did we come from? And that's that's really the heart of the matter.
0: To which you don't have an answer.
11: No, to which I do have an answer, absolutely. I believe that the Sumerians give us the answer of where we came from. Here I'm in alignment with a man named Zechariah Sitchin, and we can talk about who the Sumerians are and and why I believe they, what they had to say and what Zechariah Sitchin has to say about them is in fact accurate. I think the evidence is overwhelming that the Sumerians knew what they were talking about, that they were very accurate when they described the process by which we came to be here. And not only that, I believe that they were accurate in describing how the solar system came to take the shape that it has, And I believe that they were accurate when they described how life came to be on Earth. They they talked about all these things, amazingly so, between four and 6,000 years ago, in great detail and with great accuracy. And in many cases, they have made statements that have proven to be true by our own people only within, say, the last decade or two. It's really remarkable. The Sumerian story is, I think, one of the great unknowns of this era and when more and more people come to know and they are I think through the work of Zechariah Sitchin and Alan Offord and, and and now myself I think people are going to understand that what we are saying is in fact right and what they've all been taught is as my book says everything you know is wrong I believe that we're going to see that that's the case who were the Sumerians the Sumerians were the first ancient culture that we have on the planet. They walk out of the Stone Age, literally, you go from the Stone Age to the Sumerians at around 6,000 years ago, and they have over a 100 of the firsts that we consider necessary to a high technology. They are, in fact, the highest of the ancient high civilizations, better than the Egyptians, better than the Greeks, better than the Romans. And they had the first of everything at an extremely high level of sophistication. They were amazing, absolutely amazing. And we know as much about them, if not more, than we know about those other cultures. But we're not taught about the Sumerians in our
0: schools, nor at the university level. How much do we know about uh, the degree of civilization that they reached?
11: We know a very great deal. They left behind hundreds of thousands of clay tablets describing in excruciating detail, in minutiae you wouldn't believe, about how they lived, what they thought, what they did, how their business was, was um, conducted, we know an inordinate amount about them. But because they don't fit that Darwinian paradigm of simplicity leading to ever more complexity, how do you stand up in front of a class and say, well, class, here we go. The very best ancient culture was the first ancient culture right out of the Stone Age. So they just gloss over You get very little about the Sumerians in school, and you get an awful lot about the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans. Mm. But what we should be being taught about is the Sumerians, but we can't be taught about them because what they had to say is so far off and so so off the wall and, and so unacceptable to the Darwinian paradigm they have to be just put on the shelf and, and kind of swept under the rug and hope nobody noticed. Kind of like, you know, embarrassing relatives at the party, you know. Huh. Nobody wants to deal with the Sumerians because they don't fit our view of the world and our particularly our view of ourselves. How technical were they? Very technical, extremely technical. Give me an idea. Okay, well, they had... An, let's talk about their astronomy for a minute. They had. They knew, for example... Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto were out there. Not only did they know they were there, they knew what they looked like in the heavens. If you're out in the heavens looking at them, they knew what they looked like, and they wrote about it. Mm -hmm. Now, we only found Uranus in 1781 when our telescopes got good enough to see it. We found Neptune in 1846 when our telescopes got good enough to see it. We found Pluto in 1930. I mean, it's absolutely impossible that these people would know this, and yet they did. They kept time. They kept cosmic time based on the great year of precession, twenty five thousand years. That was their base time figure, twenty five thousand years. They walk out of the Stone Age and they know about precession, and that's that's their unit of measure of, of astronomical time. All right, look, we, on are, on. <laughs> we are
0: we are now at the bottom of the hour, so I'd like to break and uh, invite people to call in and pick you apart a little bit. How's that?
11: Well, uh, do we want to talk about where we came from before we do that? All
0: right, we'll do that and then open the lines. How's okay. that? Found All right, you. stay right there.
1: Her hair's hollow gold She left sweet to pride Her hands are never cold She's got better days eyes she kinda music on You won't have to think twice New York snow. She got it's so easy. Good,
5: right to, to talk with Art Bell on Coast to Coast AM from outside the U.S., First, dial your access numbers to the USA, then dial 1-800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM from the Kingdom of Nye with Art Bell. It is, and uh, this is a one-time offer, folks.
0: Uh, I told you I was going to do it around Christmas time, and so here it is. I have authored two books, The Art of Talk, the first one I wrote that many of you actually don't know about, about talk radio, How I Got In what it's like behind the scenes, all that kind of thing. And, of course, more recently, the quickening on the New York Times uh, bestseller list now. If you would like autographed copies, I promised I would do it around Christmas. And so this is it. It's a
13: one-time offer.
0: You can get either one or both books. And I'm going to give you the phone number. I'm not even going to go through the pricing thing. I'm just going to give you the phone number. And I'm going to tell you this is talk about limited time offers. This really is one because I sign until my wrist is ready to fall off. And this is the last time we're going to do it. So I promised here it is. Either one or both books autographed. Final offer, 1-800-864-7991. one 864 7991 You can call right now. Alright, back now to Lloyd By. Uh, Lloyd, uh, you were about to b- drop the big one on us.
11: <laughs> All right. All right, excuse me, yes. Uh, well, what the Sumerians say, uh, is that the solar system as we know it was reshaped at four billion years ago by another planet that swept into the just forming solar system. That would be the twelfth planet. That would be the twelfth planet. Zechariah Sitchin's famous twelfth planet, you're right. Uh, swept in on the ecliptic was captured by the gravitational pull of the larger outer planets was pulled toward the sun and captured by the sun as a comet would be and so that it now orbits in a long elliptical orbit of 3600 years clockwise now all the other planets go counterclockwise in circles so you can just almost imagine that that visual in your mind i can this other planet looping out Past Mars, between Mars and the asteroid belt, uh, 3,600-year cycles. And what the Sumerians say is that on that planet, either developed or somehow was put there or whatever, there was a superior culture, vastly superior to ours, a space-faring people. And that in their rise to a high technology, they damage the atmosphere of their planet, which according to their depictions is the size of Uranus and Neptune. So it's two to three times the size of Earth. Very big planet, a lot of atmosphere to repair. And the only way really to repair an atmosphere, and we we are faced with this same problem right now, and in the future, ultimately, we will have to repair our atmosphere in Mm -hmm. exactly the same way they had to repair their atmosphere which is to take very, very, very fine particulates of gold, almost a powder, shoot it up into the stratosphere, where if the pieces are small enough, they will disperse and stay, and they will act, which what is what gold does. It acts as a perfect insulator and a perfect reflector. That's how you patch, basically, your atmosphere. Well, the Sumerians are writing this four to 6,000 years ago, and we're just finding out that that's what we're going to have to do. So, Gold, people... gold is a perfect conductor, Lloyd. And an insulator and reflector.
0: I I wasn't aware of its insulation properties. Yeah, that, it's
11: be a good insulator and a good reflector. Yes, those gold is a wonder, an amazing thing. But anyway, you're right, and a conductor as well, but no conducting up there. Anyway, point is, they needed gold, uh, and that's the reason that was given by the Sumerians. So the these people on this other planet didn't have enough on the planet is called Nibiru. The people are called the Anunnaki. Now, right. again, all of this comes from the work of Zechariah Sitchin, who's written seven books about this. Yes. And uh, anyone can reference anything that I say, you know. I have and, interviewed Zechariah well, several there, times. There you go. So, um, the the goal they needed was not adequate on their planet Nibiru, so the Anunnaki, the people, came to Earth around 430,000 years ago, according to Sitchin's calculations and they set up shop in modern-day Iraq, in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. And there, they placer mined the gold, sweeping out of the Zagros Mountains, and they processed it there because that was the place on Earth where you had naphtha, which is petroleum products basically, what you could burn a fuel just seeping up out of the ground very easily to get to. They would process it and ship it back to their planet as it cycled through in 3600-year cycles. After about one hundred and fifty thousand years, they tapped out as, as you will you 'll tap out any source of gold and they but by then, because they were a flying people as well as a spacefaring people, they had found the mother lode down in southern Africa. so they moved they split themselves up into the upper world, those that stayed in the Tiger Retes Valley, and those that moved to the lower world to begin digging the gold out. Well, those who had to dig the gold out. Uh, gold even today under the most modern, modern of circumstances is very difficult, hard, hot, dangerous work and they, the Anunnaki, did not want to do it so at around 285,000 years ago there was a little revolt there and they decided we're going to make ourselves a slave we're going to make a slave to do this and this hard work. So they did that. They they genetically engineered using again according to the Sumerians using the creatures of Earth as a base, as a genetic base. And I say those were the Neanderthals.
0: Now wait a minute. I think I'm going to leap ahead and say, my God, you're saying we're all a bunch of gold diggers. Yeah,
11: <laughs> good, good, good. Yes, that's what originally we were, and maybe that's why so many of us still have that trait. It could well be. But anyway,
0: <laughs> you mean uh, you mean that. That thing where when we hold gold, when we look at gold, when we taste gold, when we see gold, it brings on a certain fever that drove people to murder and drove people absolutely crazy. could, uh,
11: could be that it's in our genes. Maybe they <clears throat> programmed us that way so we'd really, uh, really care about it and really want to dig it out. I, I, I don't know. I've never heard that before, frankly. That's original with you, but I think it's a good idea. Oh, no, it's absolutely exploring. true about gold. I mean, look, look at the yeah. gold
15: rush days, even I,
0: modern I day. Yeah, you take a hunk it. of gold. You take a gold nugget. You take a gold coin. You hold it in your, in your hand, and you know... It's something special. really special.
11: Right. You're right. And it could well be that it's innate in us. I, I haven't heard that before, uh, uh. but, uh, you know, certainly worth exploring. But anyhow, so we they say they genetically engineered us combining using the, the creature of Earth, which they call, you know, as they called it. As a base and putting their genes in with the creatures of Earth, literally genetically engineering us to be what they wanted us to be, which is strong enough to do the work, but not too strong, smart enough to take instructions, but not as smart as them. But not too smart. But not too smart. Is that it? why we only use some portion of our yes, brain? Yes, that's why we only use 10% of our brains, exactly. They had to give us fundamentally their bodies because the creatures of Earth, all primates, most people aren't aware of this, but all primates have about 10 times our relative strength. If you were, for example, to take a male chimpanzee, not a gorilla, right. a male chimpanzee and put it in a room with Mike Tyson, and it's a fight to the death, Two or, three late, two or three minutes later, the chimp is walking out. Now, he might be missing an ear, but the chimp is walking out. And so oh, most people oh. are unaware of that. It would tear Tyson limb from limb. It could. It has the strength. To, if anybody's had a pet monkey, they know what I'm talking about. Incredible strength. Oh, yes. So it's they could not have their slave having that kind of strength because if they get together, it'll be a real problem. So they had to really dummy down the strength and give them essentially their strength, the slaves, so we got their body, and but they had to also upgrade the brain considerably. And that's why when you look at those uh, skull patterns that we were talking about a while ago, you see this huge leap, especially in the forehead area, when the Cro-Magnons come along. They had to give us their brains. But they seem to have, from all we can tell, idiotic memory, which is that they remember everything they see for as long as they live. They have powerful super brains, and they live a very long time. So they dummied us down to the extent of putting, apparently, a genetic partition in our brains to allow us only to access about 10% of what they access fully. Now, the way we know that is because of the feats of idiot savants. Well, I think we all saw the movie Rain Man when Dustin Hoffman played the, the idiot savant brother sure. to Tom Cruise. What an idiot savant does is in the damage to their normal sense, their normal intellectual capacities, they somehow get tears in that partition, that genetic partition that we seem to have in our brains, which allows them to access certain parts of the genius that we all carry around in our heads, whether it be in math, as it was in Dustin Hoffman's case, or music, as the case of others that you've seen, or other intellectual abilities. And so what we know is that we all have this tremendous wealth of untapped intelligence in our heads that we can't get to. And the reason, I think, based on the Sumerian writings and what the Anunnaki said flatly, their goal was is that they put a partition in our brains to keep us from from being able to be as smart as them and ever rival them. So to ourselves, we're really smart, we're really cool, we think we're really sharp. We're stupider than dirt, we're slugs to them. Dumber than dirt. So they could always stay ahead of us and nothing <laughs> we could do or
16: scheme or,
0: you know, everything. Well, now wait problem. just one moment. All we right. are in the process of unraveling the human genome.
11: Right, exactly.
0: Now, when we get unraveled uh what's to stop us from breaking down the barrier
11: absolutely nothing and let me say this too about that you know in the wild art and everybody knows this when a creature a plant or animal is born and it's severely defective what happens to it it
3: dies it does
11: it does not pass the problem on into the gene pool now you do get still always egg and sperm misconnects. You get two-headed cows, six-legged goats. You know, that's a a, a sperm-egg misconnect. But you do not have things that repeat generation after generation after generation in the gene pool, genetic defects. Guess how many we have? 4,000 and counting. Now, how does that happen? How how does that happen to to one species out of all the others? It happens because it's an indication that we have been, in fact, genetically altered because in the cutting and splicing process that our own genetic engineers do now, they make mistakes. You're dealing with something very, very small, microscopic in size. Sure. And there are going to be accidents. And when there are, if we're doing something, well, we want to be careful that we don't create the the monster that will kill us all. Right. But if they're making a slave And they're not worried. They have enough experience not to be worried about creating the thing that's going to kill everybody. Are they going to worry about it? No. They're just going to keep right on going. They've got a deadline. So, oops, oops, we slipped. Oops, oops, we slipped. Well, they know the numbers as well as we do mathematically. Of those 4,000 genetic disorders and counting, we all, each of us, carry around 50. I may have 200. You may have 10. We average 50. So, when we marry... Uh, and have produce offspring. Uh, our spouse is going to maybe have one or more of what we share, and if they do, then we, our our offspring have a one in four chance of expressing the problem. So Correct. they knew the math for the slaves. They the, they were going to express themselves intermittently and at random. And if they didn't care if it was one in a hundred was defective, they didn't care if it was one in ten. They're making slaves. What do they care? Now what we will be able to do over time is not only drop the partition, but we are right now, right now working to repair those 4,000 flaws. We have a whole body of science dedicated to doing that. Right. So these are, these are some of the proofs that we are indeed genetically engineered. But probably the most convincing one is this. The Sumerians said that the Anunnaki told them that they created us around 250,000 years ago in southern africa to dig the gold that's what they wrote four to six thousand years ago in the late 1970s our geneticists discovered that there is something in our cells called mitochondrial dna it's dna that's outside the nucleus so it doesn't mix in each pairing it passes down intact from generation to generation in females so we can look at the mitochondrial DNA of any female and know when her oldest living ancestor was alive. All right, here's here's one possible hole.
1: Okay. Uh
11: when they
0: created us in that manner, All right. uh, you're you're suggesting they knew precisely and exactly
2: what they were doing.
0: Uh, and yet here we are progressing to the point, as I mentioned, where we're going to unravel the human genome uh, potentially stop aging, stop disease, right. stop uh, uh, correct uh, uh, anything that that might be wrong. In other right. words, in essence, becoming the very monsters <clears throat> from their point of view
11: that uh, they were uh, took every caution not to create. No, the monsters you're talking about is themselves. We are absolutely on the road to becoming them. Oh, you're that, right. That's right. That's right. That's right.
0: And and that means we are. The monsters they didn't want. They wanted slaves, not to. They
11: they wanted slaves. They didn't want equals. I
0: don't. I think monsters is too strong a word. From their point of view, equals. From their point of view, in other words, if we were today to design a slave, a perfect slave, we would put in all sorts of limitations, just as they did with us. Exactly. And from our point of view, if this uh, brainless, nearly brainless slave were to get autonomy, consciousness. And
11: then equality,
0: we would have created a monster.
11: When I speak, that's one of the questions that always comes up when I give my slide presentation. It always comes up, well, what's going to happen when we clean out all the mistakes, drop the partition, and we're equal to them? What are they going to do? Well, if there's a cosmic contract out there, I don't know what it says regarding us. I don't know if they will welcome us with open arms or if we will be squashed on the way to getting to that point. I really don't know, and I don't think anybody does know, but it is certainly... A topic worth discussing and 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 worth considering in exactly the way that you're doing it. I don't have an answer to that. I don't know what the cosmic contract says if in fact it exists in that way. But I do know that that is the ultimate result of where we're heading. We're going to perfect ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're going to do all the things that you said, and we will be them. Now they had inordinate lifespans in the range of maybe 300 to 500 thousand years. Start so they bread. had already done this on themselves, and the way they interbred, if you might, if you've talked to zechariah you know that they would marry their sisters and their half sisters consistently trying to keep the gene pool pure they they did exactly the opposite of what we do because of all of our mistakes that are in our bodies in our genes we know we've learned by bitter experience not to marry our close relatives because the number that 50 that we were talking about Goes way up the possibility of having a defect, but they, they inbreeding in and lots of defects. They obviously had clean genes because they would marry their inner Mary with their close. I've got you. And so for them, they have what we are on our way to achieving. So yes, we're going <laughs> to stand toe to toe with them at some day in the future, and the question is what happens when we get to that day, and I don't have an answer for that. I have certain answers that I can tell you. I can tell you we didn't evolve here, that they created us, that the hominoids did, but I can't tell where we began, and I can't tell where we're headed. I don't think anybody
0: can. All right. I think we have now told the story. So we're near the top of the hour, and what I want to do is open the lines and let them have at you. Okay. Now, are you, are you up to that?
11: Absolutely. i ready right. for it.
0: All right. Stand by, then, and we will do that shortly. I'm sure everybody out there has at least one or two already have everything kind of people on your Christmas list. Well, I'll just bet you they don't have their own private star. Now, would you please listen carefully, because I'm getting a lot of email on this, and I don't want to have to send the phone number to everybody. Get out a pencil. Yes, you can have your own star. I do. My wife does, a lot of celebrities do, and it's $45. And people say, well, is it real? Yes, it's real. You can have a star named for anybody you wish. Just call the International Star Registry at one 800 282 Now, listen, they send a beautiful, full-color parchment certificate of record, a sky charts, so you can locate the star, and a fascinating booklet on astronomy. Now listen very carefully. The new star name is entered in the registry's book and recorded with the U.S. Copyright Office. So it is real. It really is your star. And as I said the other day, imagine if it should happen to go supernova or something like that. Imagine your name. It'd be everywhere, wouldn't it? (laughs) So this is real. Call one 800 282 three 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 think of giving a gift this year that really is out of this world and by the way the certificate is absolutely stunning it is beautiful the number once again is 1-800-282-3333 all right when we come back your calls and lloyd pie I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM.
1: I do miss Duncan. We were married 59 years. The times we've had.
7: I'd always cheer him up with my stories. It seems kind of empty without
9: him. Senior Companions help other seniors stay independent. Sometimes it's simply taking someone to the grocery store or picking up a prescription. Sometimes it's just being a friend.
7: The jokes. Oh, my.
9: Call 1-800-424-8867 and learn how you can become a Senior Companion.
7: Children have their entire lives ahead of them, and Navy volunteers are beside them, tutoring and encouraging children in classrooms across America. Because given the importance of education, shouldn't we support our children to join the men and women who serve our country and communities? Call 1-800-USA-NAVY or visit the Navy's website at www.navyjobs.com. The United States Navy, serving America twice. Nice.
15: Here's Hall of Fame quarterback Fran Tarkenton for ADT. Every good quarterback needs protection.
7: Even
12: today, I depend on my home security system to watch over the people I care about most. So I went to the folks at ADT, and I asked them to give me a deal. Take all the guesswork out of choosing a home security system. Now, the first thing they did was to offer me their best price guarantee. So I know I'm getting the best home security system at the lowest possible price. And then, wouldn't you know, they backed it up with a six month money back guarantee. So you think about it. If you can get the guaranteed lowest price from the nation's oldest and largest electronic security company, ADT, why on earth would you call anyone else?
15: Call 1 800 927 9020. That's 1 800 927 9020 to take advantage of ADT's best price guarantee. This is the limited time offer, so call right now 1 800 927 9020. This is Art Bell. Hang
0: on, there's more. Following the news on AM fifteen hundred KSPP, Saint Paul, Minneapolis.
15: From
1: ABC News,
15: I'm Joe Vaughn. Will she or won't she? Attorney General Janet Reno is due to announce today whether she'll recommend appointment of an independent counsel to investigate fundraising practices in the White House involving President Clinton and Vice President Gore. Insisting that she's been guided all along by the facts, the Attorney General has turned down several Republican demands that she asked for an independent counsel to investigate Clinton campaign fundraising. Republicans accuse her of using technicalities in the law to protect the president. ABC's Vic Ratner says in spite of all the Republican pressure, most observers expect her to decide against a special counsel. At least 35 Russian miners have been killed by a methane gas explosion that ripped through a coal mine in western Siberia. 32 more are still unaccounted for. Authorities say only five of the bodies have been recovered so far. Russia's holding a California businessman, Richard Bliss, on suspicion of being a spy. Russia claims Bliss was found taking land surveys of sensitive sites using satellite receivers that are illegal in Russia. Stepmother Lou Bliss says Richard was just one of several employees of a California telecommunications firm Qualcomm working in Russia.
7: Our understanding was Rick was the one that was handling the equipment. He was the tech and so he was the spy.
15: The company says Richard Bliss is no spy. His stepmother says she's been doing a lot of praying for the Russians to turn him loose so he can come home. A third teenage girl has now died from wounds suffered at Heath High School in West Paducah, Kentucky, yesterday when a 14-year-old freshman boy opened fire with a handgun on students taking part in an impromptu preschool prayer. The boy's in custody. Sheriff's deputies say he still hasn't told them why he brought a stolen gun into the school and opened fire on the prayer group. One more witness in the prosecution is expected to rest its case in Denver today and the trial of the second Oklahoma City bombing suspect, Terry Nichols. You're listening to ABC News.
6: Investors, listen close. The stock market is at an all-time high, but how much are you really making? Investment research has found a situation with a potential of $5,000 returning $20,000 over the next six months in heating oil. It won't be long until cold weather and inventories are down and demand is going up. There are warnings about shortages already. Get the facts yourself, 800-926-1155. That's one 800 926 one one five five. Check the details. Eight hundred nine two six eleven fifty five. The market's are already moving higher. This could be the beginning.
5: talk with Art Bell from east of the Rockies. Dial 1-800-825-5033. That's 1-800-825-5033. Now here again is Art Bell. Well,
0: I don't know if it's the dawning of the age of Aquarius, but it is eight planets lining up. That's what's happening right now. We should get to see some uh, pretty good photographs of all that soon. That's happening as we speak, as is the interview with um, Lloyd Pye. Uh, if you're a new listener to the program, uh, you may observe that we don't uh, we don't sit here and tear apart. I don't sit here and tear apart my guest's um, presentation. I don't believe in doing that. I believe, in fact, in helping my guest present his information, uh, if I'm able, uh, as best I can, rather than stopping and arguing with him at every juncture. I don't do that. And in this way, I try and let you be the judge. I assume that you're grown-ups out there, and you can decide for yourself if what you're hearing sounds reasonable or sounds like absolute BS. And the best way to do that is to allow my guest to present his material uh, in an unfettered manner. And so that is exactly what I do on this program. As you may have noticed by now, we run a kind of a different sort of program than you will hear uh, generally in talk radio. And some people find that shocking and then eventually invigorating and certainly thought-provoking. Now, as you know, we're uh, fairly new uh, to the New York City market, very proud to be on with uh, WABC in New York. And we're there on kind of a six-week, four-to-six-week uh, invitation to be on the air. So I'm going to enlist your help, those of you listening to WABC. Uh, we would like to become, obviously, a permanent fixture. And with your help, we can do that. And I realize a lot of the material is uh, very, very new and shocking and uh uh, kind of strange for a lot of New Yorkers who are hearing it for the first time. However, if you respond and you tell ABC that you are enjoying what you're hearing, uh, we, of course, are on ABC stations uh, kind of across the country, from KABC to um, uh, San Francisco, KSFO, to WLS in Chicago, to ABC in Atlanta, now to ABC in New York. And I would like to enlist the help of those of you who listen to WABC to call them up and let you uh, let them know that this experiment uh, is something that you are enjoying. If in fact that is the case, by all means, help us out and give WABC in New York a call and let them know you are enjoying the program. In this manner, we might remain. Let me also add as kind of an addendum here, Uh, not only, WABC, of course, is uh, very important to us, and we hope that uh, we'll be permanently there, and with your help, we will be. But it really applies to all radio stations. Every now and then, you've got to take a moment out of your busy day, and it is best done during the day, and call the station you listen to and thank them for the program. Uh, And, um, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, they listen. Uh, because radio stations, believe me, folks, are just like any business. Uh, they listen to their customers or ultimately, uh, they get in trouble. And every now and then, radio stations don't listen to their customers. They get in trouble. There is a change. It's a kind of evolution, perhaps proving evolution. <laughs> and, uh, and the it's out with the old and in with the new. And that occurs when they don't listen to the people that they serve. And so the way to do it is call and be polite by all means. When you call, be very polite and tell them what you enjoy, what you would like to hear more of. And if that is the case with this program, then you could certainly help us out by doing that with your radio station. Just sort of make a little note and give them a call during the day. All right. Back now to Lloyd Pye. Lloyd. Yes. Are you ready?
11: Well, if if I could just take one minute, I'd sure like to finish that mitochondrial DNA piece because that's uh, it's very important. Okay, one minute then, and then we go to the pause. Mitochondrial DNA um, showed the, the biologists that they could chart the course of the evolution of any woman in the world. So what they wanted to do was... Go back and see when we branched off from our common ancestor. Was it closer to 5 million years or was it closer to 8 million years, as all the anthropologists taught at that point? Mm -hmm. They did the tests on women all over the world, every race, every creed, every color, and when the test came back in the late 1980s, you might remember this. It wasn't 8 million years. It wasn't 5 million years. It was, in fact, between 200 and 250,000 years ago. And not only was it that time frame, they knew exactly where the oldest of us came from, which was southern Africa, which is exactly what the Sumerians were writing and saying four to six thousand years ago that the Anunnaki had told them. So I think that's very compelling proof that the Sumerians did, in fact, know what they were talking about because they were being told it from the horse's mouth.
0: All right. Uh, okay. All right. Here we go. Uh, west of the Rockies, you are on the air with Lloyd Pye. Good morning. Where are you, please?
14: Are you talking to me? I am. Oh, great. Uh, I'm uh, Dean. I'm in uh, across the bay from San Francisco. Yes. All right. Uh, I had just tuned in a short time ago, so I don't have the name of the gentleman.
0: Lloyd Pye.
14: Am I? Lloyd, Lloyd
0: Pye. P-Y-E. Pye. Oh, Pye.
14: No, Vers- P. P is in Paul. P- Pye. P-Y-E. Very good. Well, I'm going to ask him some questions about Pye now. Um, uh, Mr. Pye, uh, are you familiar with the work that's been done in the last... Oh, say, 400 years among the scientists. Who do you consider to be the greatest scientist of all time?
11: Albert Einstein.
14: Oh, my. Well, I consider it to be Sir Isaac Newton. Certainly a good one. And um, Good choice. Einstein did a little bit of work with mathematics, but as far as other observations, uh, it's mostly... Uh, anyway, I'm very crazy. concerned because this, this uh, evolutionary philosophy that's been going on since... Uh, Well, for quite a while, not only since Darwin, but uh, didn't get very far with Darwin until, um, and actually until uh, the end of World War II when uh, uh, Darwin's bulldog, Thomas Huxley's grandsons, Aldous and uh, Julian Huxley, uh, got in the UN and became the director of UNESCO. Do you remember that?
11: Now uh, no, no that, I, I knew about Darwin's bulldog being Thomas Huxley. Yeah, I well, Huxley's
14: grandson that. was the director of UNESCO here for about 30, 35 years uh, from 45 on. All right, sir, so we've got to get to a question here. Okay, well, the question is, how in the world do you believe, if you really have studied some of our scientists and their work, that the Earth could be anywhere near 45 to 125 million years old?
11: I don't believe that. I believe that the Earth is 4.6 billion years it started to coalesce, and I say that it's at least 4 billion years old in the shape that it's in.
0: Okay, that's right. You did not say that. In fact, uh, that is exactly what you said. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Hi.
7: Hi. How are you? Uh, I am fine. Okay, just make sure. My name is uh, Cherry. I'm from Harlem. I'm living in Harlem right now. From where? Harlem, New York. Okay. I've been living in Staten Island for 23 years, but I was raised in Harlem. Welcome.
1: Uh,
7: yeah, welcome. Uh, I mean, my question is more of a spiritual nature. Okay. Uh, one question I'd like to ask, uh, Mr. Pye, is he familiar with a book? It's called The Classification of Planets.
11: Uh, no, not that particular book. I'm sorry.
7: Okay, that's okay. Well, uh, basically what he says is that there are... Uh, Five classifications from zero to five of planets. And uh, uh, there are certain um, planets that can produce other planets, universes that can produce other universes, that kind of of theory. Uh, And uh, a friend of mine told me about it. So I said, well, where where, where are we in the scheme of things? He said, well, we're zero.
0: Okay, you're talking about Dr. Michio Kaku and his theory regarding type zero, one, two, and three civilizations, correct? Right. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. And we are a zero, yes.
7: Okay, which made me feel kind of bad being a human being. Uh, My question is this. It's more of a spiritual nature. Do you... Is there anything after this life, based on on, on the little bit of the show that I did here, and I'm a first-time caller...
0: All right, well, that's the ultimate question, all right. Um, What do you conclude, uh, Lloyd, or do you stay away from it entirely?
3: No,
11: no, based on the writings of the Sumerians, which is all I really uh, like to go on, I I try to stay away from metaphysics as much as I can. Uh, The Anunnaki themselves, these individuals that live on this other planet, they had the concept of a monotheistic, great god like what we say is a god with a capital g they felt that there was a big god behind them that created them governing everything that they did created the universe very similar and in fact a carbon copy of what we believe now because we took it from them they handed it down to us initially we we because we were living with them considered them the anunnaki gods Mm -hmm. with a small g they were our gods on a daily basis we were serving and dealing with them when they finally left us and left us in charge of the store so to speak uh the small god concept went away the small g concept went away and we it passed down to us their large g concept and that has become what what we believe now
0: so to sum up uh, you are suggesting that indeed you believe uh, as they believe that there is a, a a god big g that there is a life and a spirit uh, that extends beyond the physical
11: well no matter the question how long the physical was, what, what did they say and that that's what they said now, as far as my personal beliefs on it i 'm still working on that i, I have <laughs> some I have some reservations i I have some leanings in that direction. But I'm, I'm, that, that part of my, my belief, my personal belief system is still in process and I'm still working on that.
0: Okay, that's fair. Uh, Wild card Line, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Hi. hi. Yes.
5: Hi, uh, Art and hi, Lloyd. Uh, this is Dan in Virginia. Hi. It's a fascinating program. Yes. It raises a lot of questions and it answers a lot of things too. Uh, my understanding is that, I guess what I want to ask you, where's, at one time, man apparently had all the facilities to do great things, um, and then he got genetically manipulated. Right. So my question is, um, what happened before the Sumerians? Or were the Sumerians, you know, the ideal uh, thing that man is fully capable of uh, doing?
0: All right. Well, in other words, were the Sumerians the first?
11: Uh, not, no, not exactly. The first, the first people, as the genes tell us, uh, came to be between 200 and 250,000 years ago. The first humans, as we are now, the first uh, Cro-Magnons or whatever you want to call us at that point. But we were human. We were fully human in the way that we are today. Now, most of those people that were alive up to the time of the flood, which is around 13,000 years ago, around 11,000 B.C., the Great Flood did in fact occur, according to the Sumerians, and it did in fact wipe out most of us. So then we had to start over at that point repopulating the planet. Again, the gene line is staying intact, but most of us are now gone and we have to repopulate the planet. There was never a time, Dan, frankly, when we were superior or capable of extraordinary things. From the very get-go, we were designed to be an inferior model of the Anunnaki, an inferior model of the gods with the small g. And we have always been that. We've always had the 10% partition in our brains. We have always had the 4,000 and counting genetic disorders. Initially, we might have been better. We might have had cleaner genes initially because we were... More, we had more of the Anunnaki pure genes in us, but as time has gone by and as we've gone through the generations and mixed and swirled and combined those 4,000 disorders, uh, we have gotten prog- you know, progressively less than we might have been at the beginning, but we were never really outstanding. We were never really anything approaching them. Fascinating.
0: Uh, Lloyd, I do want to ask you, uh, sure. about your book. Now, okay. your book is called Everything You Know Is Wrong.
11: Book one, human evolution. You need to add that because there are other things out there called everything you know is wrong. There's an album. There right. are other comedy books. Okay, everything That's, you know is wrong. Book one, evolution. Human evolution. Book How one, do people get your book? Uh, it will not be in bookstores probably until the middle of next year, so they have to order it by an 800 number or order it directly from the publisher. The 800 number is 1-800-444-2524. That's one 1- 800-444-2524 that is a company that specializes in doing this down in Sarasota, Florida. Right. And the mailing address for those who don't have a credit card is Adamu Press, A D A M U, Adamu Press, Box 8100, Box 8100, Madeira Beach, M A D E I R A, Madeira Beach, Florida 3 3- Three seven three eight, Madeira Beach, Florida. Three three seven three eight, and that book is twenty dollars and four dollars shipping and handling.
0: Okay, give me the uh, zip code again, please.
11: Three three
0: seven three eight. All right. Uh, now read the whole address one more time. I I know how people are. I mean, okay. they're
3: sitting there scratching. Adamu
11: Press, A D A M U, Adamu Press, box eighty one hundred. Madeira Beach, M-A-D-E-I-R-A, Madeira Beach, Florida, 33738. Okay, and the, the 1-800 one... number is 1-800-444-2524. How much is your book? $20, $4 shipping and hand. So to say $24. $24, exactly. All
0: right, uh, very good. First time caller line, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Good morning.
11: Good morning, Mr. Bell.
0: Uh, where are you, sir?
11: Uh, this is Ray from Little Rock. All right. I've got a scenario to throw out. Mr. Uh, Pye was talking about the Anunnaki. Could that very well tie in with the alien abduction?
0: Or alien. what we know as alien abductions?
11: Yes, very very much so it could. I, I think they, they supposedly left, according to what we understand, the last of them left at around 200 BC, which is the last time that the planet Nibiru swept through the solar system. They, the, the colony that they had on Earth, the last remnants of that colony left at that time. I think personally, this I believe, I don't talk about it in the book, this is just my personal opinion. I believe that they would have left some behind to sort of oversee the experiment and just, you know, keep their finger on the pulse of how things are going around here. And I do believe that the abductions probably in all likelihood are governed by the Anunnaki uh, that they left behind to do that now. And, when, again, when I give speeches, this is one of the areas that we always get into. <clears throat> the way I think it might go is this, that they develop the ability to, to build androids, not necessarily slaves anymore, but, but androids. And I think, personally, that the greys that everybody talks about are androids. And I think this because, occasionally, most people see just the androids, but occasionally they see the bosses one way or the other and those are described oh, exactly the way the Sumerians describe the Anunnaki, as tall, very, very pale-skinned people mm-hmm. with long or, or semi-long blonde to, to reddish hair, that's right? And good-looking, and, and just like perfect humans. And that's how they're described. And I think those bosses that occasionally people see, humans see when they're on board these crafts, are very likely the Anunnaki. Again, personal opinion, can't prove it don't have it in the book, but that you ask the question, and that's my, my own personal belief.
0: All right. Then let me cause you to extend it uh, one speculation notch further. Okay. If that is the case, what do you imagine they are concluding with their monitoring?
11: Well, that again, we get into an area that nobody can say. I think they're trying to just keep track on what we're doing, keep track of how the gene pool is changing. And and who knows what they uh, their plan is when it comes around again? But understand, it won't be here for another fourteen hundred years, so there is a long time now. To them, that's that's an eye blink. They are virtually immortal relative to us. Again, their lifespans are three hundred to five hundred thousand or more years.
0: Well, did you know that when we launch each space shuttle, because I didn't know it, naive me, when we launch every space shuttle, there is the ability from the ground to destroy it. Yes. You knew that. Yes, I did know that. So, uh, if if your theory is the way it is, right, then you would have to imagine that those they left behind to do the monitoring would have a destruct button.
11: Yes. <laughs> You're right. Uh, that's why I say I have no idea what the cosmic contract says. If in fact that is you know what it is, but there it's it's. All too, all too real that we could reach a point where it's intolerable for them for some level or other. I mean, I don't want to go around hanging crepe, which is what we call it down here. I don't want to go around hanging crepe all the time and say, mm-hmm. yeah, we're living on borrowed time. That is a possibility. I think it's equally possible that they're looking and they're smiling and they're saying, "Look at these things we built. Look at what they're doing. They are really coming up. They're going to be as good as us one day. We can't someday They're some going to days, welcome us with open you know,
0: arms. Some just... days, Lloyd, I believe that. But if you read today's news, fourteen-year-olds uh, shooting yeah, up other fourteen-year-olds you know, at prayer meetings, I uh, then I, I see. That long alien finger reaching for the (sighs) button. All right, Lloyd, hold on. We're at the bottom of the hour. We'll be right back. My guest is Lloyd Pye, and we are talking about our beginnings. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM.
11: Talk station AM fifteen hundred KSTP.
5: In the kingdom of Nye, from east of the Rockies, dial 1-800-825-5033. That's 1-800-825-5033. From west of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, call Art at 1-800-618-8255. That's 1-800-618-8255. First-time callers, dial Art at area code 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell. Now again, here's Art. Once again, here I am. My guest is Lloyd Pye,
0: possibly causing many of you to extend out to the 11th percentile point this morning. (laughs) I'm going to ask him about the God spot in a moment. The one scientists are working on right now. I'm going to get you 60 Minutes. Very interesting uh, program this last Sunday about a doctor. And uh, during the course of this investigation they did on multiple personality disorder, uh, they showed the book Hostage to the Devil by Father Malachi Martin. And I sat straight up. And it's funny, because I had just booked... Father Malachi Martin, for this Wednesday night, Thursday morning. That's right, Father Malachi Martin, this Wednesday night, Thursday morning, depending on your time zone. And then, um, then Thursday night, Friday morning, the following day, Richard C. Hoagland, <laughs> yes, here he is finally, along with geologist Ron Nix. Those are programs you're not going to want to miss and I just kinda of wanted to slip that in there. Once again now, uh back to uh Mr. Pye. Uh Mr. Pye, welcome back. Thank you. And uh to the telephones, I guess we go if you're ready.
11: I'm ready. I would like to though though to say if uh Cherry and uh Harlem is still listening. Cherry you be sure to call WBABC tomorrow morning.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank All you right. Lloyd. Um first time caller line
2: you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Hello. Uh good morning Art. This is Al in San Diego, first time caller. Yes, Al. Uh I have uh I mean there's just so many ways to go uh at this uh notion. I I'm sorry I can't call it a theory. Uh but I make kay. you know, one comment about us and one uh, comment about our alleged creators. All right. About us, first of all, the, ironically, you should mention my mitochondrial DNA because that pegs us at one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty thousand years ago, not two hundred and fifty thousand years ago. It's rather precise uh, in 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 evolutionary terms. But you know the only people I haven't heard this in in decades. The only people who still say that we don't use but ten percent of our brains are the people who don't know ninety percent of what our brains do. so that's that's a question for you to comment on. My second question about our creators. If you realize that you're saying that people who could do genetic engineering 250,000 years ago wrote on clay tablets, even the early Christians had the sense to use uh, copper. All right. Uh, There is a good one. Lloyd?
11: Okay. Well, as far as the clay tablets, clay was what they had at hand. If you go to Iraq today or you uh, as it's called by Joseph Campbell, that little mud garden where civilization sprang from, mud is the tool that they use to do everything, clay, meaning the clay, and uh, actually it's stone, it turns into stone. they would fire it into stone, and there T- uh, tablets will still be around when uh, all of ours are long gone, probably. So they were actually putting it on one of the most impermeable uh, sources that you could have. So. Maybe maybe not so dumb. Uh, not you so know, dumb. it's a so funny thing. Uh, we just
0: recently the... heard the uh, uh, Department of Defense destroyed a whole bunch of records. Right. Uh, they simply shredded them. And I had several faxes noting that uh, had we inscribed upon stone or something uh, more permanent, that would not have occurred.
14: Exactly. <laughs> there you go. So, uh...
0: all, right. all right, here's one other for you that I want to ask. All right. Scientists uh, in London, I believe, are just now uh, coming up with evidence that when we think about God, think about a creator or pray, right. depending on how you want to look at all this, all right. there is actually a specific part of our brain
11: that appears right. to become active. Are you aware of that? Yes, that's programmed to do that, right? That That it was built into us. To worship them. And it's, it's not impossible. Again, with the genetic engineering that they did, and what the gentleman said about our brains, the 10% and the 90%, I refer him again to the feats of idiot savants, and I think that speaks for itself. Uh, and as far as the 150,000 years versus the 250,000 years, it depends on which sample and which test you've done. There have been a lot of tests done since there have been a lot of, there are being tests done now on male Y chromosomes and they're coming up a little shorter than the original test did. It doesn't matter. Somewhere in there we were genetically created and we're a very young species. Lloyd, and younger he, than, you know, an
0: idiot, the, and idiots of yeah. Uh How do we know that they're using all of their brains? Is it oh, not no, no, equally no, they're possible not, they're,
11: they're not simply using? I don't I, I? I thought I made it clear. And let me reiterate: they're only using a narrow finger of ability. In other words, if you imagine the partition is just a screen, there's a little tear, like a hole in it, where they can reach in and do these phenomenal things in math, in music, whatever, but they're not accessing the whole 90%. No, no. Just a narrow finger of light shining through the hole, they can go in there and see to that extent... But to us, it's blindingly phenomenal what they can do. They, their abilities so much outstrip our normal geniuses; yep.
0: it's not even. It is, it is a provocative challenge. Right, um, exactly.
16: Wildcard line, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Hi. Yeah. Uh, good. Uh, good morning, Art, and Mr. Lloyd Pye, I believe it is. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know what? You have got a guest on here, Art, that uh, that I can agree with about ninety percent of it. I have two questions for for your guest, uh, Lloyd. Um, the first one being is the Sumerians. They uh, they they had communication with the Anaki. I guess it was, there was a was a race. And was it during their time or was it left in some other form? That's number one question. And number two would be uh, I've read a lot of a lot of metaphysics and so forth, but also a lot of Greek mythology. Now, is there any relationship between the Greek gods? Because there was many, many, many Absolutely.
11: of them was Absolutely. There any
16: relationship between them and the Anaki, or is this just enough? to
11: is this, it this is a very good question. The not only the mythical characters of the Greeks, but of the Romans and even of the Egyptians, they are all almost carbon copies of the living gods of the Sumerians. In other words, as the Sumerians wrote down what the the people they were actually physically dealing with and their their traits and their characteristics and they had personalities just like we do the different gods again with a small g enki and lil and her all the Mm. names come down as a pantheon of 12 where there were 12 leader gods among the the gods of the sumerians and as they wrote about them, that pantheon of 12 came down to every one of those later cultures. The names were changed, but a lot of the personality traits... And you have to read Sitchin for all the details of this. I don't go into that kind of detail. Uh Sitchin's work, the Sumerian stuff, is only part four of my book. If you're interested in that, though, Sitchin, Zechariah Sitchin, does a wonderful job of it in his books. You're certainly welcome to explore that. But yes, those... Mythological, those mythologies of those later cultures come down directly from the Sumerians and they were just simply telling it and viewing it the way th- through their perspective of much later time what the Sumerians had written and taught and, and talked about.
0: All right. by thanks. Uh,
11: Art, I've got a couple of quick questions
0: for Miss Pye. One, does he feel the notion of the soul as a divine part of man comes from a memory or a metaphor of the inability of humans to use 90 percent of their brain in effect when we can access this portion of our minds will our souls be reached and we become in quotes divine beings as those who made us and could utilize their entire brains
11: i don't think that will lead to divinity in the sense that the anunnaki themselves did not believe themselves to be divine in the way that their creator was their god with a big g i don't think they viewed they viewed themselves as divine relative to us of course course. as we would if we had created a slave the way they did but i don't think that perfect knowledge leads to divinity i think that that's that spiritual aspect of it if in fact it exists and is real will remain always all
0: right uh part two does lloyd feel that the ancients this is really interesting left us certain texts or myths that could in effect inform us of when we were getting close to the meeting with our creators i.e. the book of revelations will be prophecies and so forth
11: uh, or and i think we could add to that the bible code um... Uh-huh. it's quite possible it 's quite possible, I think if you read the bible code, the book that was uh, you know everybody's been talking about for yes. the last half of this year, yes. if you read that and you understand the concept <clears throat> that excuse me that the mathematician was trying to express that it may well be a a uh, hologram of sorts containing all the knowledge that there is to know about the future and that all of our lives are are written in the hologram i mean it 's mind boggling to me as just a normal ordinary person, and yet when you realize the kind of minds that we were up against and that we we are dealing with when we're talking about the Anunnaki then it's certainly not impossible and it makes sense that if in fact a god did hand those those the the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Old Testament, to uh, Moses the way the old legend that was discounted as a myth uh, Mm -hmm. states, then it's quite possible that they designed that and they are leaving messages in other texts as well and in other ways and in other forms that we're maybe not yet quite intelligent enough to understand. But it could be that they're trying to help us along, but at our own pace, given how badly they crippled us in the beginning. Who knows? I, I don't
0: know. All right. East of the Rockies, uh, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Hello. Hello. Hi. Where are you?
11: I'm in Sheboygan, Wisconsin.
17: All right. Um, my name is Stephen. I'm a pastor um, at Research Universal Life Church. Uh-huh. Um, I have two quick things I'd like to talk about. The first one's for you, Art. And it has to do with remote viewing that you discussed with a rebroadcast yesterday. Yes. With uh, Major Ed Ames.
2: Dames, B-A-M-E-S,
0: Dames. Okay,
17: Dames. I wasn't sure the way you put okay. it together. Um, have you ever seen the video or movie called Official Denial? No. Okay, I'll give you a quick rundown on that.
0: I'm well, gonna... I, listen, it really does... it's really quick. It's, it's got to relate to what we're talking about now.
17: Okay, maybe I can call on a different time for that. Please do, yes. Okay, no problem. Um, talking about gods, um, as far as Eric Von Daniken, who wrote in one of his books... Um, He had mentioned that the gods had been born in Turkey, a lot of them, at that time back then. And he also mentioned later in that same book that as the age progresses, for some reason on the planet Earth, there's less and less gods born each time for each age. Um, Another thing is, too, talking about omniscience or perfect knowledge, like the last caller said. um, Since we're in the age of information, I came up with the idea a few months ago that perhaps we'll reach a point where... Because we're so tuned into the information around us that we become omniscient, um, like it says in Corinthians, that we see through a glass darkly, but then we'll see face to face, and we shall be like him, the firstborn among many brethren. So that's basically what. I well, want not, to say. With
0: the, what, not with the. Not with the present genetic limitations uh based on what you said correct
11: lloyd right i mean i was waiting for the question uh he he just apparently just made a statement and if you're asking me to agree or disagree with with that statement disagree uh, no i don't i don't think that that's going to happen without some kind of outside intervention not certainly in the shape that we're in now now if we design our own destiny and we are able to redesign our own bodies then yes, maybe we will stop looking through the glass quite as darkly as we are now. But I think we're a long way from that. Uh, but it's not impossible that we will reach that. We've we've gone over that. And maybe you're late to the show, but we've gone over that in various forms earlier. And what we're talking about, we may rise to that point. But we're not there now, and we're not even particularly close. We're just on the way, and we have our toe in the water, and we're moving in the right direction. But we have a long way to go. Got
0: gotcha. you. All right, uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Good morning.
13: Good morning, Mr. Bell. Hi, uh, where are you? I'm in Hawaii.
0: Hawaii. And All right. My name is James. Yes, James.
18: Um, okay, I had a real quick question for you. Um, can I get your fax number real fast?
0: Mine? Yeah. Um, sure. Um, it, three page maximum, otherwise, it doesn't print out. Very important to know. Um, it's area code 702. 702. 727. 727. 8499. 8499. And it's very important. Uh, my fax machine digests the number of pages, and if it's in ex- excess of three, including the uh, the cover, if you send one, what a waste cover pages are. Um, it won't print it out. So hold it to three max.
13: Okay. And if you yeah, want, have...
0: if you want to send me email, I, I'm meant to get this out. It's Art Bell at aol.com. A R T B E L L at aol.com. Okay. Okay.
13: Okay, thank you. Yeah, I was asking because I have four
0: ideas for free energy devices. That's fine. All right, do you have a question for my guest?
18: Yeah, um, Mr. Pye, um the information about the Sumerians, would I be able to look this up in a, a regular library? Yes. Uh,
11: the look for the work of uh, Samuel Kramer uh, as far as the translations. I wish I meant the translations of the tablets. Or do you want to see the
0: tablets themselves? Well, I guess he would like to see... Uh, I, I would imagine both. He's not here.
11: Both. Oh, okay. Well, if he wants to see uh, the translations, uh, Samuel Kramer did uh, as good, I think. And a lot of uh, Mr. Sitchin's work is based on his translations, although others worked in the field the same way. He's generally considered the man. as far as the tablets themselves... Of the microfiche of them they are in libraries all over the world particularly though in England and Germany because those were the guys that did the majority of the digging up of the cities of Sumer in the uh, late 1800s ok uh, first time
0: caller line you're on the air with Lloyd Pye good morning
14: hey Mr. Bell yes I'm a little disappointed in you
0: well that happens all the time
14: yeah, it's alright though <laughs> <laughs> where are you? Um, I'm in Brooklyn.
0: And what is your disappointment?
14: Nah, it's really nothing, but since the last time I spoke to you, guys with the uh, sunglasses have been following me. Well, hey, and listen. Tommy Boy Malloy. Help
1: me, Mr. Bell.
0: <laughs> Help me. <laughs> yeah, any, anything for my guests, sir.
1: Hey, come in to Gabby. What do I
18: do?
0: Anything for my guests, sir? Uh, No. Okay, see you later. Uh, Wild Card Line, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Good morning.
18: Uh, good morning from Los Angeles. Listen to
0: KABC. Yes, sir. Uh,
18: I agree with Mr. Pye. In some sense, there are life forms that are introduced in this world from you know outside sources, such as diatoms in the Mesozoic. But the one question I have for him: if these Anakis, or whatever you want to call them, are that not.
17: yeah,
18: are that far ahead of us in technology, knowledge, and so on? If they were in search of gold, and this is, this is a common uh, thread I find in uh, extraterrestrials coming to the earth to find something. If they're that far technologically ahead of us, why couldn't they transmute their own metals into gold without, without coming to a, another world?
0: A very reasonable question.
18: Actually,
11: when I, when I speak, that's one of the two fundamentals about the gold question. Why didn't they transmute and why did they have to dig it out? Well, um, you have to dig it out because it's in ore and there's nobody that we know has found a better way to do it as far as transmuting That, to my knowledge, is still just a theory and has not been proved as a fact, and I I am not going to sit in judgment of them. Maybe it is, in fact, impossible. Now, if if it is possible, then that's a very good argument. Why didn't they? Maybe they didn't know how to do it, or maybe in the end it is, in fact, impossible. I don't know. Uh, All I can tell you is what the Sumerians said. The evidence is all around us that they were here. I think not only in our evidence in our bodies, in our genes, but the evidence of the megaliths that stand around the world, which we haven't mentioned yet, which are clearly their fingerprints or their footprints or whatever you want to call it, that they were, in fact, here and they did create those edifices. So we have to go with basically what we're told. We're told they were here. We're told they had to come for gold and until somebody actually transmutes something into gold, I'm going to believe that they knew more about it than I do.
0: Are you willing to allow for the fact that your basic theory regarding how we got here is correct, but that the details with regard to the Sumerians and uh, the 12th planet and Sitchin's work and all the rest of it could be wrong? In other words, there could be another answer which wraps into your basic theory
11: it That's always possible now, as far as the sequencing excuse me sequencing and the details, as you may know if you've read both Sitchin and Alan alford there are some there is some debate between those two about the timing sequences, let's say right uh and, and other and other things where they're not they're not quite sure, and I believe that we're only in the beginning phase as far as I know, Zechariah Sitchin is first, Alan Alford is second and I and he's recent he's just last year, and I'm third in this line. Moving the paradigm in a whole new direction. So I believe we're just getting started, and there are going to be obviously refinements as more and more people come into the field of ancient astronauts and begin to study this stuff the way that we have. We are going to find more and more scholars who get into it and say, ah, but this makes a little more sense, or this is a little more of a refinement. I think, in general terms, though, I think in general terms that Zechariah Sitchin has it right, the Sumerians have it right. I don't think it's going to be very far off from that. Though. All right, we're, we're, at, we're at the bottom
0: will... uh, bottom of the hour, top of the hour, oh, rather, oh, and so we got a break here. Um, my guest is Lloyd Pye. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM. And now it's time for the weather,
1: Candy.
12: It's going to be a
1: beautiful.
5: Talk with Art Bell. From west of the Rockies, including Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico, dial 1-800-618-8255. That's 1-800-618-8255. Now again, here's Art. Now again, here I am. Good morning, everybody. Lloyd Pye
0: is my guest. If you have questions, come now. You know, I get private calls, and I got another one earlier today from somebody I know very well and they will call me up and they'll ask Art you know I want to buy a Christmas present for so and so and is what you say on the air really true about the Sanjean ATS-909 and I always pause and I say come on do you honestly think that I say things on the air that I don't mean particularly when I'm talking about the ATS-909 is it the best? Yes. If you've got the money, you want to buy somebody a Christmas present and you want to buy the best portable radio in the world for them?
15: Yes, this is
0: the one. There is simply no contest. Now, if of course, if you don't have this kind of money, 259.95 it's down, by the way, 10 bucks. Then fine. there's other very good radios you can buy, including uh, some in the Sanjin line, but if you want, the best, there's no um, question about it. This is it, AM, FM, shortwave. Every bell and whistle you could possibly imagine, memories beyond uh, anybody. I have 200 memories pre-done with all the most popular shortwave stations, to give you an idea. Uh, RDS on FM, which gives you the call letters of the station or their logo, whatever. Exquisite sound quality. The size is just perfect for travel, selectivity, sensitivity, all the important things, Uh, sideband reception, upper and lower individual uh, filtering. There is not a radio that even comes close to the 909. So, if you want to buy the best for Christmas, and by the way, not having to go to the mall, you pick up your phone in the morning and call Bob Crane at 1-800-522-8863. It's that simple. 1 800 522 8863. The Sea Grain Company. Ask me, Hawaii, or Canada. Call area code 918 687 0404. Okay, uh, back to Lloyd Pye. Here he is once again. You're doing very well. Having hung in there now, this would be your fourth hour, Lloyd.
11: Well, I'm glad to be here. I'm just grateful for the opportunity to to, to talk about these things. I think that uh, they should be more widely disseminated, and I I really appreciate that you have a show that allows those of us who are into this to uh, to have an opportunity. I do. Uh, first time caller line, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Hello.
6: Is me, uh...
0: Well, only you know that for certain, but, yeah, I'd say offhand it's you.
6: Okay. Uh, my name is Perry D'Angelo. I'm the executive uh, director of the New England Skeptical Society. Uh, Mr. Bell, a quick question for you first. Uh, there's a difference between attacking your guests and analyzing their notions critically.
0: That's, that's correct. Are you that? Yes, I do.
6: Uh, b- do you ever do that?
0: Uh, it depends.
6: Well, you had said at the beginning of the last hour that you, you refrain from attacking your guests.
0: I, I uh, yeah, I refrain, on, uh, in other words, as... A method of interview, I refrain from attacking my guests generally, that is absolutely correct, and I try and help them tell their story and I leave it to you and particularly you uh to call up and um uh to challenge in any way you wish, which you now have an opportunity to do
6: okay, fine um I would like to ask uh your guest. How can you, uh, how can you assert to a scientific community or any reasonable person that your notion of a, a cosmic dump truck is more believable than Stephen J. Gould's work on punctuated equilibrium, which has been embraced by scholars worldwide,
11: uh, while your theory, uh, you know, labors in their anonymity? well because those scholars that you're talking about we have a saying down here it's called they have a dog in the fight uh, they have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo as it is okay wait a minute i have to stop you right there okay. so many
6: people of your bent say that scientists have a vested interest in the status quo that is on its face preposterous you want to win the nobel prize and be a scientist the way to do it is by knocking down theories that have been long-standing with new ones by sublating old information. To maintain the status quo as a scientist will achieve you nothing. Not money, not notoriety, not anything. That statement is preposterous.
11: Well, it's not preposterous at all. There are any number, any number of examples of individuals who came forward with a new theory or something really radically different and they were not part of the scientific membership or part of the scientific fold not invented here, and they were absolutely ridiculed and as long as possible until they were just overwhelmed. Their objections were just overwhelmed by the new reality. There's an example, I have several examples of it in my book. Uh, Wegener's plate tectonic theory being just one of them, but it, it really goes on and on. And actually, sir, your statement is equally preposterous. There what are, statement any, of that? again, any number of examples of theories that have been put forth by somebody that wasn't scientifically perhaps you credible, don't
6: understand, or and perhaps then you don't it just will not
11: be accepted by you guys until you don't get understand. rolled over by it.
6: Perhaps you don't understand how science works. When you propose a theory, a, a hypothesis, it is the job or the duty of the scientific community, of other scientists, to critically analyze, critique, and literally tear apart your work looking for the holes in your theory looking for the flaws, and it is only after that very rigorous process, if your theories are still standing, that they are then accepted as most probably true.
11: You understand that? Yes, I do, but I also theories theories understand that. Okay, now, now,
14: hold it, hold
0: it, hold it, hold that's... it, hold it, sir. Let right. him ad- re- address that. I'm giving you your chance.
11: Every, every, uh, this is what I know, that every establishment, particularly the scientific establishment, but every establishment, I'm not picking on them in general, government, uh, the local, um, poker club, every, every establishment is in business to do fundamentally two things. Keep things the way they are as much as possible, i.e. maintain the status quo, and avoid culpability for error, which is avoid having to say, we made a mistake. And uh, nobody likes to admit that less, probably, than the scientific community. All right, Lloyd, Oops, Lloyd, ho- Lloyd hold on a sec. Caller, sure. uh, let me point out to
0: you if the following, right. and that is that uh, a great deal of science in this country is funded with federal dollars, with grants, private or federal. And it certainly is true that if you propose to study something that is not uh, conventionally accepted as part of a current paradigm, your chances of getting that money are slim and none.
6: Don't you realize, Mr. Bell, that in order to get those funds, to get those grants, you have to uh, make your proposal, you have to present a scholarly paper, uh, paper to the people whose job it is to make these decisions. If your paper cannot substantiate the need for your research, then we have to make the decision, realizing that we have limited resources and can only fund so much research. We have to uh, fund those things that have uh, a likelihood or have scholarship in their proposals.
0: Oh, no, I, I fully understand what you're saying, but okay. uh, parad- paradigms indeed are propped up.
3: Hmm?
6: Sure. I mean, uh, scientific theories that have withstood past rigor uh, huh. do stand up. The uh, history
11: of science is nothing but one long theory of—I mean, one long series rather of corrected mistakes. That's really all said? science is: one long series of corrected mistakes. But and all I'm crazy. saying is, it's time to correct another series of mistakes that I feel are out there. Now you obviously feel differently. You're entitled to your opinion. Yes. But, but I that believe that, that, that I'm marshaling enough evidence to indicate that there are some serious flaws in the current paradigm and I'm trying to call attention to that and this is my way of doing it. And if, if,
0: you, have, if yes, you caller you, caller, call if you have specifics that you would like to attack, why don't you do that?
6: i I I'll, I'm not a scientist and I don't have scholarship in this area. I've only read uh, Mr. Gould's work. I've read their paper on punctuated equilibrium. Uh, There are others in my organization that do. I don't. But nonetheless, Mr. Bell, the um, attack on science in general and having a skeptical philosophy um, is in its nature a very helpful and uh, very positive thing because it gives you the filters with which to hear all of these notions, including your guests, and be able to uh, put them in their proper perspective uh, in your life.
0: All right. Well, uh, very good. I thank you for the call, and uh, it's too bad we could not get down to specifics, but if you have any of your friends who can, have them call. Um That's what we're here for. Wildcard Line, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Hello.
19: Yes, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, this is Paul in Philadelphia. Hello, Mr. Pye.
11: Hello, how are you? It's Paul, Pretty did good. you say?
19: What's that? You said Paul? Yes, uh-huh.
11: Okay.
19: Yes, I appreciate the idea that the that the uh evolutionary theory and the uh and creation have their have their um, have their problems i i i do i do see that the 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 problem i have with the with the sumerian picture is uh that i have no reason to assume that if there were anunnaki which i don't know for myself but if i assume that there were i have no reason to know that they were telling the truth to the sumerians
11: well, you're right. They're, they certainly didn't have lie detectors strapped to themselves, but we would <laughs> right. have to ask ourselves: Why would they lie? They well, were so I just superior. Think of a lot of what good reasons? What would uh, the advantage be to them? Well, Unless...
19: if you're if you're an alien and you come to this planet and uh, and you want to create an oppressive or or confusing atmosphere for the people or. Or, or, you, you know, you, you say, look, I have a lot of power, you know, I, I'm an alien, and, uh, look, we, we created you, and, uh, we're here for the gold, and you do this for us, and that sort of thing.
11: So, so I really, I tend to disagree with your theory on, uh, Well, let's, Paul, if you will for a minute, let's go back and look at one of the factual matters that we discussed earlier and and maybe you didn't hear it. Yes. Uh, What the the Anunnaki told the Sumerians is, we made you, we made you around 200 to 250,000 years ago and we made you in southern Africa to dig our gold. And our geneticists in the late 1980s discovered that in fact our genes, which are absolutely inviolable, Say that we were in fact created around 200 to 250,000 right. years ago right. in but, southern Africa. But, so I take that as evidence that they were telling the no, truth but, at least in that instance, and that's the one that counts. Well, no,
19: you? it isn't because because the fundamental theory theory is this thing about how we were made as slaves to dig the gold, and that's where I have the problem.
11: The fundamentals of my theory are that we are a genetically engineered species. Why they did it is not as important as the fact that they did it, and I think the evidence is fairly overwhelming that they did do it. Well, I, Leave I, their I, reasons I'm, out I, of it if that's, not, if that's a problem for you.
19: Well, well, I, I would rather believe that we're free spiritual beings, just as free as any, as any, uh, any, any planetary race or any alien and uh, you know that's, that's sort of what I I tend to hang my hat on. Well, and, uh,
11: basically we are now. I mean, they're well, not over here overseeing us the way they did before. So fundamentally, well, you're correct. Are, but we, we didn't start part. out that way.
19: No, those are theories that you have, and 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 your your theory has you know gets the respect that it deserves. And uh, right. and I appreciate your your questioning the paradigms that we generally accept. But okay. but I would rather go for the uh, the, the 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 free soul theory. Welcome welcome. That's what I hang my
0: hat yeah. on. Yes, you're welcome to do that. Absolutely, uh, absolutely welcome to do that. Uh, this is simply food for thought. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Hello.
4: Gentlemen, good evening. Good evening. I, uh, I have three very strong points. Um, All right, where are you? I am in Dallas, Texas. Three strong points from Dallas. All right, fire away. Okay. Number one, we'll start a couple years ago. Uh, try uh, four 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 and a half million years. Um, you said... There's no way um, we could have originated from molten lava. Mr. Bryan, is that that, that (coughs) correct?
11: Well, yes, I I would say that it's uh, virtually impossible that we would have originated from molten lava. Yes, I think that's a safe statement to say.
4: Okay, I tend to agree with you there. Um, But my theory lies uh, in that Mars has recently been uh, found to have, have had living organisms
11: is that right or wrong uh they are suspected to be they look very much like there is a a picture that looks very much like a typical prokaryotic chain of life on earth it's possible there are those who look at it and see a prokaryotic chain there are those who look at it and see just a conglomeration of little specks like around it that look make it look that way so that it's the jury's still out well to me uh, that tells me that if there's no uh but that, those, those
4: um, and it's also been, been um, theorized, or I, I don't know if it's been proven, but those those living organisms have come from a, um, a, a meteor or a comet of some type impacting Mars, uh, leaving the the bacterial debris. Right. I I believe, um, and and maybe, uh, and I think this is this goes against what you believe um, that if if
11: that's the case with Mars, then the same could have happened with the Earth. Actually, it's it's a good point that you make, and it's the other way around. The story, we didn't talk about this earlier, but the story the Sumerians say is that when that planet came into the solar system, there was another planet that was called Tiamat, and on it, it was a very large planet outside the orbit of Mars. And on its second pass-through, when both were still fairly plasmid bodies, but the Nibiru planet was older and therefore more stable, there was a head-on collision, literally a head-on collision, with Tiamat going clockwise, counterclockwise and Nibiru going clockwise. And they, Nibiru blasted Tiamat in half, tore it apart, creating, in the process, the comets, the asteroid belt, all this is related in the Sumerian epic of creation called Enuma Elish. But they, they create, they solve, in that process, five of the great current mysteries of astronomy are solved by the Enuma Elish. Comets and the asteroid belt being two of them. But in that process, a third one was, they say that in the collision, in the mingling of their waters, Nibiru passed life to Tiamat. So Nibiru was the, the container of life that inexplicably passed it to earth to what was going to become earth which was the rem- the remnant of Tiamat at four billion years ago, just when we did, in fact, uh, get our first life form, the two prokaryotes that we talked about early in the program that you might not have heard. So, in fact, what happened was in the collision, that water containing the life sprayed out all over the place, and it, sp- it could very easily have sprayed to Mars. And so if, in fact, those are prokaryotic chains in the meteorite, which is literally how they look. To my eye, that's how they look. They look like a a prokaryotic chain. Then those prokaryotes would have come in the same collision that put life on what became Earth, which was the remnant of Tiamat. It's very fascinating. Their whole story... Of the creation of the solar system. Okay, Absolutely Lloyd, I, I'm going to stop you for a second sure, and tell please. my audience that there is, if uh, you
0: will, go to my website, a link to Lloyd's. It is kind of a, a website in transition, right, at the moment. Putting uh it together. Now there are going to be a lot of people who are going to want to comment to you, uh, Lloyd. No question about it, on what you had to say tonight. You have an email address.
11: Yes, I have an email address for uh, for, for that. It's Lloydpie at lloydpie.com, lloydpie at lloydpie.com, and I have, of course, a personal email as well for for friends, but for those who want to comment about this, I think the lloydpie at lloydpie.com would would be best.
0: All right. Uh, West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Lloyd Pie on Coast to Coast AM.
12: Yes, hello, Mr. Bell, and hello, Mr. Pye. Um, I have a quick, uh, actually, two uh, questions. One is regarding Tiamat. Uh, If you are familiar with the size of the dinosaurs which used to live on this planet, they were roughly around 130 tons uh, for the largest one. Presently, the largest elephant can be about 8 to 10 tons. Uh, is there any possibility that uh, the dinosaurs perhaps lived on this planet Tiamat and therefore explaining why their size was so great compared to anything which can live on the planet today?
11: Well, that's an original question. I've never heard it asked before, and I've really never given it much thought. My first thought is I don't, I don't think so. It's certainly not impossible. There's nothing in the Sumerian tablets that I'm aware of that would indicate any transplanting like that, uh, of that nature. So while it's a possibility, I can't I can't say for sure, and I have no factual basis to give you an answer. Right. Just a quick physics:
12: Uh, the larger the planet, the more it can condense the atomic structure, therefore allowing the animals to be larger. Um, Possible? Like I say, I just don't have any facts to give you there. Great. And the second one is regarding our moon, which the Sumerians called Kingu, um, saying that they basically placed it into its orbit. And if you'll notice, the angular size of the moon is exactly the same size as the sun, from our perspective. And that occurs nowhere else in our solar system, and as far as we know, nowhere else in any other known solar system.
11: Right. The, The moon is clearly outsized for the planet Earth, there's no question. But if you go back to the original size of Tiamat, which was double, perhaps triple the size of the remnant, which is Earth then you see that the the moon in that case would have been more in line with the relationships that other moons have to their planetary bodies. All right, Lloyd.
0: uh, Hold it right there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Stretch run is coming up. My guest is Lloyd. Hi. Have we got you thinking? Well, that's good. I'm Art Bell, and this, of course, is Coast to Coast AM. Keep it planted.
5: Art Bell is talking to first-time callers at area code 702-727-1222. That's area code 702-727-1222. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell from the Kingdom of Nye. Now again, here's Art. Once again, here I am. Good morning, everybody. It is a wonderful world, isn't it?
0: If you own a PC, get ready to spend $99 because you're going to sure want the Snappy Video Snapshot from Play, Inc. It is an incredible new device that grabs pictures from any video source, camcorder, VCR, TV, doesn't matter. Puts them right into your PC. I've been using Snappy now to put pictures on my website for mm-hmm, about two years. But then they sent me the new Snappy with a Play chip and with the 3.0 software, and it blew me away. I have never in my life seen the kind of resolution they're able to attain uh, with this unit. It's astounding. The resolution appears to be considerably better than from that which is the source. In other words, home movies, whatever it is, you know, home video. The actual resolution of the still is better than the original. Now, how they can do that, I don't know. But they've done it. Really, they've done it. It's $99. It plugs into your PC uh, where your printer would plug in, in the parallel port, so you don't have to take anything apart. You click the mouse button. When you see something you want, boom, that's it. You've got it. Put together photo albums, uh, do newsletters, whatever you want. Look, if you've got a PC and you don't have a Snappy, I say you don't have a full PC. Want to see more? Go to www.play.com. Snappy, available for $99, incredibly. <laughs> computer stores just about anywhere. Join the computer age with this revolutionary new system. Call 1-800-354-6846 and never again be intimidated by a computer. And they can be very intimidating. Once again, here's Lloyd Pye. Lloyd? Yes. All right. Here we go. Uh, first time caller line, you are on the air now with Lloyd Pye. Good morning.
15: Uh, it's a pleasure.
0: Hi. Where are, where are you, sir?
15: I'm Gene Nevado. This is Larry. Okay. I
11: ever got through. All right. The only problem I have with your esteemed guest, Mr. Pye, and his theory is uh, I got three questions. If they're... There's a space race that he was talking about that was so advanced. Why would they need to mine gold in such a primitive way? And if the ET group needed gold, why would they have to mine Earth when they could mine lighter G planets and asteroids? And my comment-slash-question is, all Earth creatures, in my belief, are a synthesized strain, totally developed from a possibly natural-developed ET race. What's your esteemed guest, Mr. Pye's take on my belief that we, we are the robots?
1: Well, I, I
0: think that's just about what he said, actually.
11: More or less, yeah, that's right. And as far as the mining the gold, they wouldn't do it on an asteroid or or any lighter planet or anything like that because they, they needed to stay, they needed to live, so they needed an atmosphere. So that would certainly make Earth a leading candidate as far as... Mining it primitive, I mean, uh, getting it in that primitive fashion of mining, and we talked about that earlier, nobody's come up with any better way. Gold is very, very spread out in a very thin way within rocks, the ore, gold-bearing ore. Very seldom does it wash down in, in lumps. It's, it flecks at most even when you place or mine it. So it's hard to get to. But the the mining of ore, you just have to go out, dig out a big bunch of rocks. You have to ship them somewhere. You have to smelt them. You have to process them to get the gold out. And uh, as far as we know, there's no better way. And maybe as far as they knew, there was no better way. That's what it appears to be.
0: Well, it you know, I asked you a little while ago if uh, your main premise about our origins could be correct but the these specifics that you think are true right might not be and um i guess i ask that because your main premise to me seems wholly logical but the details seem to be as much of a reach uh as anybody else's theory
11: Well, all I can say to that, Art, is that you go by, you you dance with the one that brung you. You go with what the Sumerians say. The Sumerians say this now. Were they wrong? Were they misinformed? I don't know. I don't think so. We certainly do have ancient mines dug in South Africa, in Southern Africa that area that go back as much as 100,000 years uh, as far as the, the the testing that they can do on them. Now, that's hard to imagine who would be digging deep holes in the ground 100,000 years ago, uh, but nonetheless, that's what some of those ancient minds seem to indicate. So uh, we just have to go with some straight-ahead facts and some... You know, looking at them in an elliptical way, but adding them all up to say, well, this does seem to be the picture that they were presenting to us and there is some, some evidence, uh, circumstantial or whatever that indicates that they, this is the story. And, uh, I, I'm not in a position to second guess them, and I just go with, uh, with what the Sumerians wrote, and I'm prepared to believe that they had no reason to lie about it, and I'm also prepared to believe that the Anunnaki had no reason to lie to them, and that they told it to us as best they understood it. Now, if it's some big cosmic prank on me, well, okay, then I, I fell for it. But I think... They were telling us the best they could, what they understood to be the truth in their time and in their circumstances, as I think we try to do in our historical records. And whether we are going to be distorted as a bunch of myth-telling drunkard fools, drug takers, or whatever by future generations, I don't know, because that's what... Uh, Sumerians are taken to be now Just people who didn't have any idea What the truth was And they were just living In some kind of cloud land I don't don't think that's true I think they were just telling the truth As best they knew it Yes, but look how revisionist We have been Well, you know The old Churchill thing History is a fable agreed upon And uh, (laughs) that, that may well be true But as far as the details go, until somebody comes forth with better details that make more sense, this is all we have. And again, let me just say, Zechariah Sitchin's work is really the first shot out of the box here as far as this new paradigm that I think we're moving toward. And I think that in due time, this new paradigm for as strange and bizarre and unusual as it sounds right now because it's brand new, relatively speaking, is going to, in very short order, I think, take over as people begin to look at the facts. They begin to examine Sechariah Sitchin's work, the work of Alan Alford, my own work, the work of others who are going to come behind us. It stacks up. I guarantee you when you see my slide presentation or when you read my book or any of those other books, you come away saying, you know, this makes a lot more sense. And it really does. All right. and- over time, I think the logic of it is just going to overwhelm the resistance and the strangeness of the idea.
0: All right. Uh, wild Card Line, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Good morning.
11: Good morning, gentlemen.
0: Hi. Where are you?
11: I am... Uh,
12: <laughs> this is Jason and Encinitas. Yes. Quick question for you, Lloyd. Uh, right. I'm. I'm not sure if I heard you mention this earlier. You heard, I heard you mention Nibiru. Uh-huh. Have you followed Tom Van Flanderen's model of the exploded planet theory?
1: Yes. And oh. uh,
12: Planet X? I find this real interesting how Sidonia. Would relate to this model where it maybe it was just a moon because there's not like mass cities all over Mars. There's just one that, is that you know that we know of, a key city, meaning it could have been a moon from a previous planet. So my question is, do you have any knowledge of this planet actually existing and maybe Earth heading down that same course where we're going to blow and boom, we'll have a moon left of remnants of Earth.
11: No, I don't think that, and I, the, what I base it on is this. The, the uh, drawings that we have in some of the cylinder seals of the Anunnaki indicate that the solar system was more or less as we see it now, including Mars. So I don't think Mars is a remnant of anything. I think Mars was there to begin with. It's, uh, those cylinder seals are over 4,000 years old, so I, I think that's pretty much the way it was. This is my own opinion, and as far as us the the Sidonia being a par- a single thing on Mars, it could have easily been i think an outpost, maybe it could have been an area where they mined there and tapped it out, and that was the only one there. There are any number of theories we can throw out to speculate what it's doing there and why things are the way they are i try, i don 't talk about that in my book; I try as best I can to stick with the facts as I understand them and, and facts that I know and can back up. And I can't really back that up, although I'm very fascinated with uh, Richard Hoagland's work about Mars, and I, I certainly will be a, a listener when he's on on Friday. But uh, I, I can't. I wish I could be more specific and more factual and more knowledgeable about this, but I'm just not.
0: I'm okay. Sorry. All, right. All right. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Lloyd
16: Pye. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, sir. Where are you? I am 80 miles east of DFW. Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. That's correct. Sir. Okay. I, I, Mr. Pye, I, I wanted to uh, congratulate you and uh, say that I uh, really have enjoyed your program, and it's the first time I've heard what you're saying since 1955. Oh, really? My world history teacher, uh, Louise, who's passed away about 10 years, told me the same thing that you're telling me tonight in 1955. Well, I'm impressed. And I want to know where she got the news. <laughs> she was one of the most astute history teachers I have ever met in my life. She brought my grade averages up from D's and E's to A's and B's. In a she
18: probably just studied
16: the
11: Sumerians, frankly. And you know, the she materials was always very astute on the Sumerians. right the material's always been there. It's just ignored, as I said earlier, because it's so foreign to the Darwinian paradigm of simplicity leading to ever more complexity that it's very hard for teachers to stand up before students and say, well, the reality of it is is that the best culture walked right out of the Stone Age, and we went on a gradual downhill slide into the Dark Ages, and now we're coming back up again, and we're, you know, you know trying to approach their level of awareness. Uh-huh. Well, I got into uh, one heck of a fight with my
16: biology teacher uh, that I told him I didn't spring from no damn monkey. Well, you're right in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ms. Molenkamp called me crying out in the hall. She said, what's the matter with you? I said, well, I'll tell you what so-and-so said down the hall, and uh, and uh, this is what she told me. And, and then uh, we sprang into about a uh, week-and-a-half study of the Sumerians and how their... Culture came into Greek mythology, and where mm-hmm. the gods came from, and how they were named, and the, and the whole, the
0: whole
3: right. thing. And In other words, that. First that time I've heard
16: it.
0: Yep. In other words, that teacher went down exactly the same road that my guest has gone down, and I think that's a, a verification, at least, of the validity of the uh, the theory that two would track down the same road.
11: Well, I think we need to give credit where it's due, which is to Zechariah Sitchin in that regard. And I think what happened is your teacher went a little way down the road, and he went all the way to the end of the line. That's basically the difference.
0: West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye, top of the morning.
18: Yeah, hi, this is Jeff in Los Angeles. Hi, Jeff. Uh, Hi. I felt uh, quite frustrated, Lloyd, that you weren't able to uh, complete a lot of your initial thoughts due to Art's litany of interruptions, but I think you're now doing a great job of answering questions of the callers. Thank you. My questions are number one, uh, is your how's your work different from that of Arthur Horn? And number two, uh, how did the humanoids living on uh, uh, Nabooru, uh survive with so little sunlight uh, due to their planet right, orbit that, being that's, so far from the sun? That's a question that always
11: comes up. As far as Dr. Horn, uh, I, I, my work differs from him in that I don't believe in really the lizard people that he is, you know, he doesn't necessarily believe in the Anunnaki as, as described by the Sumerians. <clears throat> I don't really believe in the lizard people that, that he talks about. I think that's, you know, just beyond what I'm able to accept. Uh, now the, as far as the, uh, oh, excuse me, the second part of your question
18: again was? Uh, the, the planet being so far out, and so oh, yeah, far away from the,
11: the light. What do they do for light? Well, that, that's one of the questions people ask regularly. Uh, they are not adapted, obviously, to our degree of light. And, and, and heat, too. No, well, no heat you can't say because heat is a uh, an internally directed source, and they could have plenty of heat. Uh, all of the outer planets have internal heat. They're reflecting much more heat than they're absorbing in terms of sunlight. So they have the same kind of internal mechanics that we have. That's not a problem, and the atmosphere is not a problem because if you have internalized heat like that and it's creating steam and all, you could have an atmosphere, not a problem. Light is the, the differential. Now, we believe, because we have so much of it, that it's absolutely necessary. But, in fact, there are numerous, numerous creatures living on Earth, both plant and animal, that never see a speck of sunlight, those at the bottoms of the ocean, underground, in caves. So it's really not as necessary as we think. But an answer, a plausible answer, is that perhaps, although there's no evidence for this in the, te- in the text, but perhaps, While they were here, they simply did everything that they would normally do at night, and they avoided the sun. And if that's the case, then they would have had no problem. They would have had approximately the same amount of light they would be dealing with where they are and what they would be physiologically adapted to.
18: Hmm. Interesting theory. Thank you.
11: Okay.
0: All right. Thank you. Uh, First time caller line, you're on the air with Lloyd Pye. Good morning.
19: Um, yes, hello. Uh, this is Emil out of Minneapolis. Uh, yes, sir. KSTP. Yes, sir. And like I say, you guys got a great uh, great program, and I listened to it quite a bit. But I was wondering, if
9: you guys read the
19: book, it's The Catholic Church and Ancient Myths, and there's a chapter mm-hmm. in that. It's by Dr. Bill Donlan, and there's a chapter in that where somewhere in the Vatican, they found three vials of ectoplasm in there that's supposed to be like 5,000 years old. And I was wondering... If that to tie
11: in the uh, remnants or something that was left from Miss from Sumerians? I have no idea. I haven't read that book. I don't know anything about it, and it would be absolutely foolish for me to make even a, a speculation about that. No idea at all. I'm sorry.
0: Okay, but when you go back, uh, Lloyd, and you look at our most uh, ancient religions, uh, surely there there would be hints to support what you're suggesting, even at the mythological level.
11: What what religions are you referring to? Well, Catholicism, he
0: he mentioned Catholicism. Yes. Uh, what would you find in Catholicism that would support what you've been suggesting?
11: I, I think I would find very little in Catholicism that would support what I've been suggesting at mm-hmm. this point, uh, because that, that came much later in the game. I, I don't think Catholicism really began to take hold as a religion until, uh, what, 200 B.C.? Uh, excuse me, 200 A.D.? Right.
18: Uh, so uh,
11: the Anunnaki were gone, uh, and, and they weren't really a part of our lives past 2000 BC, and they were gone for good around 200 BC. So there's not a real connection there. By the time the Catholic Church began to be formed, but all religion began to be formed, as I said earlier, we had been out without our small G gods. For some time, and we were looking for something to fill the gap. They had always been there. They had, they had run things forever as far as we knew. And so when they went out of our lives, we attempted to replace them by looking, I think, at first for replacement small g gods. And just over time, it evolved, that magic word, it evolved into, uh, well, let's just go with the large g concept and, uh, and, and there it went. And because they, they had that knowledge was still with humanity at that point so all we right. sort of took over the religion that they had had and when they took away the religion that we worshiping them we just went to what they did that's that's what i think right. that's the sequence that i see
0: all right east to the rockies you're on the air with lloyd pie hi
18: hi this is tom in columbia missouri hi tom and uh, uh i just want to say real quick uh before i take your guest that uh to me the Center for Scientific Study of Investigation of the Paranormal is a misnomer for unscientific and biased uh, investigation or attempts to debunk um, stuff. But uh, anyway, to get to this subject, um, I think there's plenty of evidence for um, gradualism. And I put a few examples in the facts I sent earlier tonight. uh, There's all kinds of systems like nervous systems and visual systems and segmentation and uh, things that indicate uh, gradualism um but um and there's all kinds of theories like uh information theories and uh chaos theories that indicate that uh, punctuated equilibrium can occur and just one example is that uh with uh entropy that um we're finding that systems that uh are uh, in open systems that are thermodynamically that uh they will spontaneously uh produce more complexity to try and increase the amount of entropy. Um, but my question for your guest is that... Uh,
0: Very quickly, we're
18: almost okay. okay. Um, are the same beams responsible for uh, all the radiations after extinctions as the ones that affected the human race? Or are these... Is there just... Different beings that are dumping on the earth? Don't know. The time frame between the two is so vast if you know the last of the
11: extinctions was 65 million years ago and as far as we know the Anunnaki appeared around 430,000 years ago. So it could be that what was dumping the cosmic, you know, controlling the cosmic dump trucks, again, if that is the way it happened, uh, would, uh, could possibly have completely seeded and, and developed the planet Nibiru, including the Anunnaki. So we, they could be as, as developed as we are at another level. I don't really know. That All I'm saying is there is a mechanism out there at work. And we just simply do not understand it. We don't have a handle on it. And with, with people standing up there saying that we do, I think it's wrong. I don't believe that, that Darwinism or gradualism or, or anything else that's part of the establishment at this moment will in time pan out to be even remotely correct. All right,
0: Lloyd, we are all wrong. totally out of time here. Okay. Uh, so, let, in fact, we really only have time to give out the 800 number okay. for your book, which okay. is?
11: Which is, one, if you, anybody interested, it's 1-800- 444-2524. It will not be in bookstores till the middle of next year, if then, so it's the only way to get it now. one 800 444 two five two four it's twenty dollars four dollars shipping and handling all
0: right my friend well i hope that you feel as though you've had a chance to say what you wanted to say
11: absolutely listen you've been more than gracious you've given me more than my say i I appreciate it very much and uh you just are performing a wonderful service
3: for all of
11: us thank you and we're out of
3: time
0: you take care my friend Thank you. All right, that's it, folks. Um, I've got the Christmas special going on. My books, um, signed, autographed copies of either one or both of my books at one eight hundred eight six four seven nine nine one right now from the High Desert. Good night.